Yeah, I don't know, man. You ever just feel like life is just catapulting towards like, some greater purpose? The only DJ crazy enough to tattoo Jackie Brown on his ass. <laughs> this is Michael Mann, and I ride with my extended uh, job. So, like. I'm up on like 15 literature. You're right? up on the new canon. Yeah, they destroyed the canon at your coverage. <laughs> <laughs> wow, I can't believe it. At your coverage job, they made you throw away an adaptation of Moby Moby Dick. <laughs> yeah, I was like, can I read this? Can I cover this? And stuff? <laughs> uh, 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 uh. Classic literature. Yeah, I didn't cover the script you sent me. I covered my script, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> which is YA. <laughs> which is why. Here you go. <laughs> that would be so funny to do like a power move t- type thing like that at a script reading job where you make 13 cents a page or whatever it <laughs> yeah. is. Or nothing. Or yeah. nothing. Yes. Yeah. A lot of people, people know. Are. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. I've done script coverage for zero dollars. Yeah. yeah. I've done script coverage yeah. for what should be zero dollars because the pay is that insulting. It's like eight cents a page or something like that. But script coverage, I mean, that's not how you make a movie. You make a movie uh, with a good director, and that's what we're going to be talking about this week. Uh, our, our classic masters of cinema that some of us, uh, this is such a terrible transition into the best of the year. I'm trying to I'm trying to rope the coverage talk. Oh, seamless. Into, uh, it's too LA. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> all, all of our all of our listeners who, you know, when, when jobs fall through for them, they know that they can just do coverage for a few weeks. That's, you know, part of their life, too. Now, how many of y'all done coverage? (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to Extended Clip. It's episode 83. I'm one of your hosts, Eddie Averill. I'm Malcolm Baum. I'm JT White. And joining us, uh, returning champion, uh, our friend, Nate Fisher. Hello. Thank you guys so much for having me. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you, too. Uh, And Happy New Year to the listener. Well, it's New Year's Eve right now, so if you start this episode at... I'm going to say we go two hours, 15 minutes. If you start this episode at 945, uh, you will ring in the new year. With me saying the R word. (laughs) (laughs) That's how we're ending the podcast, folks. 2020, uh, you know, it went in like a lamb and is going out like a lion. The reason for the season is remembering the best movies of the year. Is it not? Is it not ranking? That's not the the reason we get a week off of work, depending on our jobs, is so we can make our ranked lists of all the best things we watched this year. Well, it turns out that there weren't any good movies this year. Uh, we talked about Tenet. We talked about Days. We talked about Hubie Halloween. What, what else even is there? Don't answer that. That's a rhetorical uh, question. I have some opinions. Nah, I don't. I don't want to express them. Okay, you know what, actually, <laughs> let's make this more of a dialectic. I don't, I don't okay. want to just monologue at you. What, what's your opinion? Um, there were other good movies that can't. Like, uh, <laughs> Fair enough. The Way horse Back. Shit. The Way Back? You're saying The Way Back was horse shit? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> no, yeah. No, okay, no. how about this? We'll table actual 2020 movie discussion. Maybe, maybe we'll hit that at the end of the pod. Shout out a couple favorites. Yeah. But this year, we remembered the classics. We went back to the books. We went back to school like Rodney Dangerfield. Uh, and we remembered the classics of cinema. And that's why, instead of a best of the year, uh, we will be talking about the best films that we discovered this year. Because the old is better than the new. I don't care if you call me a reactionary. <laughs> the old ways tradition. are always better. <laughs> yeah, we're, going, we're returning to the Mediterranean. Yes. <laughs> and by Mediterranean, I mean Hong Kong. Yes. <laughs> Back when uh, fathers took their sons to the woodsheds and taught them a thing or two. 
It's true. And that's why we're throwing away 2020 films. And we're going to be talking about each of our five favorites that we watched this year. We also are going to hear from some friends because we're, we're not alone. We're not the only people who remembered the classics this year. Uh, why don't we why don't we just hear from one of our friends right now? Would you like that? I would love that. All right. Well, let's let's um, how about Ryan Swen? We all love Ryan Swen. Yeah. Ryan, what were your favorite movies of these this this year? <laughs> Hello, friends. Thank you for inviting me to contribute to this strange end-of-the-year episode. Uh, in terms of my top five films, first-time viewings of 2020, it's I've already sort of discussed two of them. Uh, my fifth and fourth choices, Beijing Watermelon by Nobuhiko Obayashi from 1989, and Mysteries of Lisbon from 2010 by Raul Ruiz on previous episodes, the Patreon episode and the Best of the Decade episode, respectively. So... And also my third one is sort of quite well discussed already, High and Low by Akira Kurosawa from 1963. The last film I saw in a theater on print, which was a really wonderful experience and a great way at least to cap off this year's theater going and perhaps for the next few years to come. So I'll just focus on my top two first-time viewings, Femme Femme uh, from 1974 by Paul Vecchielli and Percival de Galois from 1978 by Eric Romare. I think these are two really extraordinary films, two of my favorite films ever, after just uh, this viewing from this year. I think they are both, they represent very different styles of French films, certainly very different aesthetic approaches, but they both share this strange sort of almost Baroque sensibility uh, with a minimal with a minimum of means, basically. Femme Femme is basically about two two aging actresses who are trying to find work and just struggling to survive in their cramped apartments. Uh, and Percival Le Galois is a retelling of the Arthurian myth uh, through the lens of Percival and his fruitless quest for the Holy Grail. And both of them are, are just told with such love for their characters but with such a clear eye towards their faults their their bad decisions and all of it is just shot through with this extraordinary sense for mise-en-scene and for a musicality to the the performances the the way in which the sets because Percival is shot entirely on a soundstage um and and the characters interact and the and how the music especially and the performance of musical numbers or musical motifs seems to bleed into the actual narrative and becomes inseparable from it. I think these two films definitely got at what I... They, they access something extraordinarily central to my love of film, and that's why they're my two favorite viewings. I also do want to mention that two of my main projects this year were Adam Curtis and Johnny Toe films, so I definitely don't want to... Uh, neglect to mention them my favorite of Johnny Toe's being Sparrow and my favorite of Curtis's being The Trap What Happened to Our Dream of Freedom thanks once again and I look forward to hearing the podcast at large so let's talk about our top fives uh Nate do you have one that you want to just start off with oh yeah okay so um I had a lot of time on my hands to like really dig deep do soul searching I was like this is a year uh, that I'm not gonna I'm not gonna throw on something lazy. I'm not gonna just you know watch anything just because I feel like 
you know, unwinding at the end of the day. I'm not going home from my office. I have time at home. I can take in serious masterpieces of high cinema that I've been putting off for years and years and years and years. My number five is Freddy Got Fingered, um, which I genuinely had not seen until this year. And uh, yeah, if it just, I'm, I'm sure you guys have talked about it. Yeah, it, we it, did an episode on it. Yeah. We paired it with Monsieur Verdoux, and it's an equally masterful No, you don't film. need to pair it with anything. Yeah. Fuck <laughs> Charlie Chaplin. No, fuck that. No, he, it's the greatest. I mean, what do you say about a movie that is just, that defies every convention, even of its own making? It doesn't follow any of its own rules. It does everything different at every juncture. It has several of the funniest performances of all time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean... I mean, the number of people from Tom Green on down, I'm talking about the kid that keeps getting fucking hit in the head and bleeding. <laughs> I mean, that that's that ending. I mean, the the again, he gets caught in the in the fucking wind. Uh, the what the hell is the name? Of the Helicopter. Thing? The propeller on the plane. That's the name of the thing. The propeller on the plane. All of that is like such a, a such an, a free spirited genius that like. No movie can ever live up to that. True. Also, the biggest load I've ever seen on on camera. It's got to be something. You know, it's funny because later we're going to talk about Goodbye Dragon Inn and how it's like the 2020 film. I would say if there are two poles uh, through which 2020 cinema passes through, Goodbye Dragon Inn is one and Freddy Got Fingered is the other because... Goodbye Dragon Inn formally approximates the mindset of living alone in a pandemic, and as do a lot of Simon Lang films. Freddie Got Fingered actively represents the psychosis that many people, such as myself, felt from fucking day one and has only grown since. It's a really, really interesting dichotomy because, because I often feel the few times that I do go outside of my house, I walk to the Ralphs next to my house in a sort of daze. I... I, I, I kind of just fumble to put my mask on and I just walk into the grocery store and I'm immediately just kind of like just shuffling away from people that are near me. And that does feel very much like the films of Simon Lang. But in my head, there's just a monkey banging symbols together. <laughs> and I'm just, just screaming and I'm wearing a, a deer pelt around my shoulders yelling step inside the animal until I get hit by a fucking Mack truck. It's the, it's the, it's the complete, it's the complete it of, I, I don't know. I don't know how you could watch that movie and not feel like that's a significant part of your unconscious represented on film. Absolutely. JT, do you have one you wanted to start off with? Um, yeah, my list is pretty unranked except for goodbye. Dragon Inn is number one, but, um, I don't know. One thing I want to start with, I mean, I feel like a recurring theme of all of our lists is going Asian mode. Oh, yeah. Sure. <laughs> I think well, that's... Now, what does that mean? <laughs> yeah, what are you... Oh, JT, put away that tape. I what think I'm doing? turning <laughs> Japanese. <laughs> Uh, no 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 nothing racist what are you alec baldwin's wife okay (laughs) now i missed this story is she pretending to be asian no no okay okay. (laughs) i I missed the whole thing so i wasn't sure there okay go ahead sorry it's all good it's all about um respect and understanding uh that there's a superior culture out there. I mean, I know for my personal journey with like a lot of Asian movies that I did um, this year, particularly like a lot in the summer, it was like Hong Kong action and like getting more into uh, Johnny Toe and Choi Hark and like various other routes from there. And that was just something that I feel like 
I mean, film school just left me with a lot of blind spots where I had never like gone down those avenues. Um, but this is the the number five pick for me is something a little bit different from that. I've been going Ozu mode a lot and trying to bang out all of his films. I talked a lot about Ozu in November and December, so like not particularly surprising. One of his things cracked my faves. Um, but green tea over rice is uh, the picture in particular. Um, and green tea over rice he made uh, right before Tokyo's story. And it's like on the cusp of his color melodramas. Um, it's about essentially like a richer upper, upper middle class woman who uh, resents her cuck country bumpkin husband and sort of the tension from that. The husband's just like a simple ass dude who smokes cheap cigarettes and rides the train economy style. Uh, the wife's a snob, but they're pushed together again uh, by their niece who is involving herself in the cu uh, couple's marital strife. Uh, to avoid her own like arranged marriage uh, interviews. And I love the perspective in this one because like a lot of Ozu movies, I think he's he's chilling with the gals and I think it's an interesting POV to hang with in a lot of this because it's comedy melodrama. A lot of it is the girls just sort of like making fun of their husbands like uh, the lead wife. A lot of it is just her talking about how bumbling of an oaf her like fucking husband is, which is really funny. Um and like you get to see the the gals at a baseball game, which is nice. And a lot of comedy is just mine from the wife just bulldozing over the will of her husband entirely and doing whatever she wants, like lying to him. But like since it's the end of Ozu's career, like nearing then, it's a lot of really sparse camera work that I think brings a lot of the underlying like cultural and economic tensions to the forefront because the wife's like women be shopping style attitude is very Western mm -hmm. and coming in conflict uh, with the husband's more traditional values, which ultimately spill over into like the key confrontation of the movie, which uh, the maid is asleep uh, one night and the husband suggests that they make food together. And this is the first time you sort of see them in the kitchen space. Um, and as this is happening, the wife is very like confused and flustered about what they're doing. And the husband suggests the titular green tea over rice, um, which is like a comfort food, uh, style, like Japanese meal and something pretty simple. And she like initially objects at first, but through this like very simple interaction, it sort of unravels where it's like the husband is like, yeah, I know you kind of see me as like a stupid oaf or a simple guy. Um, and he's like, but this is just the way I am. Like, I just prefer yeah. things to be like a little bit mellow, like easier than that. Um, and the wife is sort of like taken aback and like sees the joy and pleasure in that. And like, this is really the first time they're exploring that tension in their marriage. Um, and the husband is played, uh, like amazingly by, uh, Shin Saburi, who is the, um, hus the lead in Equinox Flower. Um, but from that, like sort of unraveling, I think it leads to like a, a relatively like happy ending where it's like, okay, the husband and wife are able to finally see sort of eye to eye. But I really connected with this because I think there's an, a lot of really underlying bitter sadness to that because it's like they've been married for years and years and years, completely misunderstanding each other. And there's like a hope in the sense that now they can finally understand one another. 
but like it's so bitterly sad that they just like were so disconnected for most of their marriage mm-hmm. um and it's it's top shelf ozu i remember there's a you know not to steal but there's like a good letterbox review of this that that, that kind of goes like uh, my college roommate called me a pussy for watching the flavor of green tea over rice <laughs> so i don't know <laughs> <laughs> Damn. i don't know that's just stru- that always stuck with me. That's <laughs> fucked. <laughs> That's pretty fucked, honestly. I'm glad I don't have you know fucking judgmental roommates like that. Yeah. That's why when, when my mom tells me uh, or asks me what movie are you watching, I just say you don't fucking even know what it is. <laughs> You're a pussy for even... watching Goodbye Dragon. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, just kidding. I love my mother. Uh, Malcolm, what's one of your picks for this year? Okay, yeah, like JT, it's unranked, and you know I want to start with kind of you know the lightest film on uh my list i'm gonna go with oceans 12 a movie i watched like three times this year i think i watched it three times last year (laughs) (laughs) yeah and i went through the ocean series this year and i mean 12 is like far and above the best although 11's really good too but like i was just really struck by like uh i don't know like just there's some like the way the movie's set up there's like a new visual gambit in every scene it's just a lot of yeah. fun and it's less it's less focused of course on the heist and more on kind of like this hangout kind of lax attitude but you know it also kind of intertwines that with just like some like fun plot complications so at the same time yeah. it's like effortless but complex and like I don't know, like the colors are just saturated, you know, perfectly. I, I really couldn't get enough of this movie. Yeah, effortless but complex is a great way to say it. You know, Soderbergh, I think, described it as a stoner comedy of sorts. And, you know, you understand that, but then it's also like it's still a Soderbergh movie and it has to fit together perfectly and have that, you know, propulsive force of moving forward even in its slow hangout mood. Uh, so, yeah, that's just like one of the craziest movies in his filmography for sure. Well, didn't Steven Soderbergh write a book that's called like getting away with it describing his career and i love this i love oceans 12 specifically because the way that he sort of engages with how he makes the movie is for him uh getting to have fun yeah. and hoodwinking the people that paid him to make this movie by like i'm doing something i like to do and it's not making the movie uh any more money that i get to have fun <laughs> yeah. you know i'm not helping you out you're paying me to dick around and that's great. And it's, you know, that's why the heist is such a great filmic device is because we love to see people. Uh, we love to see, we love to connect with people that, that fucking trick people and get away with shit. And we love to see people doing their job well. And that's the perfect confluence of those things. And, the, and making great movies is also about that. It's about doing your job well, but also getting away with stuff. And I think that's why the oceans movies and indeed most of Soderbergh's like Hollywood films are about that and are good because they reflect that impulse in in that we see in Hollywood movies that we love. And also, I listen to the music from the laser scene yeah. every single <laughs> day. It plays in my head. Yeah, yeah. No, I definitely just play that and walk around. I'm like, yeah, I'm fucking killing shit right now. Yeah, it's just in yeah. my kitchen, just washing dishes. Like, <laughs> and it's also so definitive of Soderbergh that that's his most expensive film. I think it's 120 million is the budget on that Wait, one. What? Yeah. <laughs> and his next film after that was Bubble, which is two million dollar budget. His you Bresson know? film. Uh, exactly. Uh, and I love Bubble. High high rock. If you have Check that awesome. one out. He shot it on the same camera that was used for both uh, EY's All About Lily Shushu and that Lucas shot the second and third prequels on. So fucking check out Bubble. It's a 
Soderbergh, I, I haven't I haven't ranted and raved about Soderbergh enough on this pod. I think we've only done one movie, but him embracing new filmmaking technology at micro budget and blockbuster levels is like nobody else is on that level. My uh, my magnificent Ambersons level sort of quest of like finding the lost footage is to get somebody to restore the app version of Mosaic mm. because it is wow. gone. There's literally no way for you to access the app version of Mosaic. You don't, it doesn't show up when you look at it in the app store. I don't know how you do it. You'd have to track down the people who made the app design the code and get them to like re-upload it. It to me is like one of the great lost objects of film history. Yeah. For those who don't know what he's talking about, Nate is talking about his 2017, yeah. I believe, masterpiece, uh, Mosaic, which is like a choose your own, not a choose your own adventure, but choose your own point of view, yeah. uh, like neo-noir that centers around Sharon Stone. But depending on what route you take, she could be out within the first you know, couple hours of you watching it. Uh, it's it's so fascinating. I watched it the web version, just like on Google Chrome, uh, you know, HDMI to my TV, and that was easily my favorite film of that year, yeah. uh, and probably still my favorite Soderbergh. That that Definitely. is just like Definitely. such. I mean, what I was just saying about new technology. There's fucking like PDF files that pop up while you're watching it that you could option. You know, it's optional to download the PDF file and read the background on that character, or you know, some news footage that he shot on uh, whatever different camera that he shot the narrative with. And the best thing, of course, is that he uses like. He uses different takes of the same scene. Mm. Not only does he shoot them from different angles, like it's like a Rashomon sort of thing, but he also uses different line deliveries based on whose point of view it is that accentuates what a certain character may or may not select that they would hear. Mm. You know, I, we don't have to talk about it. Yeah. <laughs> it's gone forever. You'll never <laughs> see it. Um, if you have uh, the Mosaic app on your phone still kind of like Flappy Bird, we will buy it for yeah. $500. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> is Flappy Bird gone? R.I.P. Flappy Bird. Oh yeah, that's old news, man. That's yeah. long gone. <laughs> uh, before I say my first pick, I'm gonna bring another friend to the table. Uh, how, how about we say hi to our old friend from north of the border, uh, Josh Lewis? Hi, Eddie, Malcolm, and uh, JT. This is friend of the pod Josh calling in from the Sleezoids podcast, where we actually just were finished uh, recording our big year-end episode on the best genre movies of 2020. Uh, one thing I realized while recording that is that uh, not even my favorite movie on the list uh, was as good as many of the classics that we all had time to watch this year due to the circumstances and the uh, the lack of content as it were, that we were greeted to this past years. And I know that you guys are uh, getting around that by talking about many of those classes, classics that you watch for the first time this year, and I couldn't help but, uh, you know, get in on the action myself, even after the end of a, a, a long recording day at the Podcast Factory, which I know you guys know all about. Um, but... Uh, here were a handful of my faves of things that I uh, checked out that I think that the extended clip stands, the the bullet heads, I don't know what you guys call them, but here are a list of things that uh, I thought uh, they should check out that I watched for the first time this year and I was just blown away by. These were all instant five bullet watches right after watching for me. Uh, these are all kind of out of order too, but the first one is uh, Truck Turner, a uh, 1974 film directed by Jonathan uh, Kaplan and starring Isaac Hayes. 
um, and it is just a really lean and brutal uh, LA neo noir black exploitation hangout jam, obviously starring um, Isaac Hayes, who did a lot of the funky music for black exploitation, including the Shaft theme. Uh, but seeing him on screen uh, himself, just drinking and sweating and sprinting his way around town, and obviously once again providing his own soundtrack uh, for the film, uh, a bit of like a, a, a black cross between a character like Philip Marlowe and, and Dirty Harry. He's he's bounty hunting all kinds of different characters across LA and engaging in car chases. Um, he's taking down rapists and hitmen and, and pimps, and he's blasting away half the criminal underworld while he's doing it. And uh, Kaplan just directs this movie like a nonstop train of sun-stroked, sunstroked car chases and bloody bar brawls and the beautiful LA location work just uh, really, really took me away. And um, it also has some of the nastiest shootouts that you will see in a 70s movies. And uh, I, I honestly just couldn't wait to cue it up and watch it again when I finished watching it. Um, but going back a little bit earlier than that. All right, all right, all right, all right, Josh. I'm gonna I'm gonna have to stop you there. Uh, I know you have a lot to say. One film is enough for now. We're just gonna keep coming back to you throughout the show because it looks like your file is way too large to play at once. <laughs> Call him out, Eddie. He looks like a <laughs> man with him. a big file. Does his like file have like an ad read in the middle of it? <laughs> <laughs> it's like a plug for his Patreon. I don't even need to get into it. My first pick uh, is Strike by Sergei Eisenstein. Now, this is a film, you know, I, I, I wanted to avoid relating everything to the current day, you know, because even when you talked about Ozu, JT, I, I held back, but I will say it now, from saying that I think a lot of people have reflected upon their family lives and those relationships that they have during quarantine, uh, especially people who live with family. Mm -hmm. And Ozu movies are obviously so much about that and the generation difference. Uh, Strike, though... I mean, come on, the, the second to last chapter when the titular action is being taken and you just see these cops like hosing down protesters. I watched this in June while America was protesting police brutality, you know, and seeing that like, I don't know, it, it, it's a film made after the revolution, but it's a film that depicts pre-revolution life so harshly that it almost feels like there's no way out, you know? And the the mounted police officers roaming through these like apartments on horseback in the climax, one of the most intense and horrifying action scenes I've ever seen. Uh, like a hundred years old, throwing a dummy off the top of an apartment still hits just as hard as like any contemporary action filmmaking does for me. Uh, I, I'm going completely off notes here because I just thought about it and got so passionate, <laughs> but I mean like, you know, a hundred years ago we had like fucking films about class struggle as like the thing that was just like a main subject of film. So much about silent cinema is about that. And this being kind of the keystone of it from, uh, from Soviet cinema. Uh, and we had this theoretical approach to editing as well. I hate to just be so reactionary complaining about what we've lost with cinema. But looking at Eisenstein is looking at a path that cinema could have gone down. You know, you look at cinema in 
the 20s. You look at early cinema and these masterpieces that couldn't even be close to replicated today. Uh, and it's hard not to be a little pessimistic about the route that cinema ended up taking. No, uh, I I definitely agree with you. I mean, I caught, I got a the, the special sneak peek at your list <laughs> and I watched Strike This Week. And one thing like from very early on, there's like a shot that takes place where it's like, uh, it's like a puddle at first. Mm-hmm. It's like a man like um, and then played in reverse where you see like after he like jumps out of the puddle or whatever, you see um, some workers like planning this strike in there. And with from that like shot alone, I was just like, yeah, there is there's nothing nearly as innovative in like anything <laughs> that like got a mainstream release this year. And it's also like it's it's a very funny kind of tossed off uh, line in the title card that says like politics in the workplace and like the <laughs> boss just like scoffs like crazy does the big mugging you know, uh, but it's just like that itself is alighted in American films of today. It's like the the politics of the worst place workplace would be making political American cinema and we don't have that. Instead instead of like a film like this, we have a PSA from the Cuomos about wearing a mask starring Paul Rudd, you know? Like that's the closest to state art that we have. <laughs> Nate, any words on Strike or your next pick? Uh, I don't remember Strike. I watched it when I was a teenager. I need to watch it again. But uh, it gets a... It, as a as a leftist, it gets a pass from me. Uh, <laughs> sight unseen, I've decided it's a masterpiece and it's good for America. And I think that in my if if I were on the socialist commune, my job would be uh, to just bring around prints of Eisenstein films and show them to people <laughs> uh, by force. I wouldn't let them not watch it. Yeah. <laughs> also, apparently, there's a scene in Red Dawn, the John Milius communist takeover movie, where they start showing Alexander Nevsky at the local multiplex. <laughs> Damn, that sounds fucking awesome. Yeah. Right? <laughs> I just heard about that. I, was I like, paid right, money to I'm, do that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, okay, my number four. Uh, like JT, I also caught the China virus this year. <laughs> And I watched Wear a uh, mask everyone That's right Wear a mask uh, let, And end up Like the ninjas In uh, In Dirty Ho The number four Is that Is that one of the I'm getting my movies mixed up I don't think there are ninjas In Dirty Ho um, No no there are No in the blanket scene I was right um, Anyway um, Yeah So I got into I also got into uh, East Asian action And other types of cinema uh, They're better at it than us and I think, you know, witnessing the collapse of America, you just got to go ahead and uh, you got to go ahead and welcome the overlords in. And anybody <laughs> that has uh, got to acknowledge that they were better at it than we were. And uh, Lau Kar Lung is probably one of the greatest uh, of their filmmakers to ever do it. I've seen a few of his movies. This one is not the most well-known, but it is my favorite because of just the uh, elaborateness of the fight scenes. Uh, the story is about, and I'm going to butcher the plot line because I didn't make any notes for this. But it's about a sort of like thief and, and ruffian type who who tries to just sort of get one over on this guy before sort of finding out that he is the greatest kung fu uh, master in the land. And eventually, um, through a combination of, uh, of shared martial arts prowess, mutual duplicity, and extreme homosexual attraction, <laughs> they are able to form a perfect Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers danced uh, number fighting team and go and do battle against uh, the evil Lord Manchurian whatever guy. And I love it 
just because I mean the 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 choreography of the fights is as good as you'll ever see in any movie. But it's also the variety of the fights, right? All the fights tell a story. All the fights show a perspective. All of the fights are so unrealistic and so bizarre that they create a sort of entire language and set of rules and beliefs that underpin every move, every sort of uh, punch that gets missed, every dodge, every hit, every sort of kick, all of the movements between both actors all of them create a sort of language of limb movement and combat that all makes perfect sense in the context of the movie. There is a fight that takes place between the two, between the main hero and the bad guy where they're having dinner and both of them are fighting each other. It's very clear that they're fighting each other, but the context and pretext of the dinner is that they can't indicate that they're fighting. They have to (laughs) pretend like they're not fighting. They could just fight, but because of the custom and because of what they're doing in the story, they have to act like they're not fighting. So they're throwing like bowls at each other around corners and neither one of them is acknowledging it. And the way that they, you know, sort of articulate who they are as characters and what their relationship is to each other, just based on how they pretend to not see a bowl coming at their face is to me, like you can't direct human beings in a more uh, multi-dimensional and considered way. It's, it's just the, the absolute perfect apotheosis of action directing. Is the greatest ever do it. Damn. I think, Malcolm, you have a Lau Kar Lung movie on your list, too. Yeah, right? Damn. Uh, Eight Diagram Pole Fighter, um, which, you know, I think there's a lot of uh, what's good about it is kind of what you said, Nate, but also... This one has poles in it. And, you know, and like this kind of awoken me to pole fighting. I wasn't really up on this, like fighting with poles. It's, it's kind of my weapon of choice now. Cause it, cause I, I think like, it's yeah. easily. The, yeah. If you're going fist, sword, or uh, pole, I'm going pole. Dude, pole. we got we to get you down to a pool hall and start hustling <laughs> yeah. with people. Yeah, I mean, I, I, uh, what did I write here? No, yeah, it's just like the, the choreography and the pole work. It's like you got poles getting split, smacked, swung. Like a, like there's even a pole cannon at one point where <laughs> a character is launching poles at opponents. And what what happens in the movie? It's the searchers. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, yeah, they're portrayed by a government uh, official, you know, conspiring with the Mongols, the Yang family. And all the, the boys are killed except for a couple. One goes into Buddhism. One goes for violent vengeance. And eventually they I kind of forget the ending. They meet at the end and fight, right? Yeah. yeah. Well, no, but the, yeah. it's the searcher's ending. Yeah. Like the guy that, that did all the like like vengeance search has to then renounce his uh, love of vengeance and venture off into the highlands. Mm-hmm. And in a way that like sort of evokes to me the sort of compositions of John Ford, except it's all on a soundstage. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it kind of has that same narrative sweep of the searchers too, where it's like it it has a pretty like basic narrative that even scene to scene, sometimes maybe you're not sure exactly, you know, what part the movie's at or whatever. Uh, but like the, the way that the fight scenes are placed throughout the runtime feels like the structure is so deeply embedded into it to where you get to the climax. And even if you don't know what's going on, you, you deep down know what's going <laughs> yeah. on, you know, spiritually feel it. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And I love the length of these fight scenes. Cause it, it just allows like these fights to like, evolve and just go different places you wouldn't really expect i think like the last fight sequence is like it's very long it's yeah. like you know, like multiple digit minutes and 
Yeah, I'm, that's, I mean, I don't know. Just good fighting shit. Nice. Since we're on a pole kick, uh, <laughs> I do have another extra pole point. Uh, I, I've i double featured all of my top fives. I'm not sharing all of my, the, I don't want to bore everybody. Yeah. But the other movie that was considered for the, the kung fu spot was Petty Cab Driver, the Sam Hung film, which is equally good. Uh, amazing film that does feature a pool hall pole fight Oof. between Sammo Hung and Lau Kar Lung, who just has a cameo. They have a 10 minute fight and it, it is, I mean, it's two choreographic styles of Sammo Hung, the choreographer and Lau Kar Lung, the choreographer, but they're fighting. It's, yeah, it's the greatest, uh, it's the greatest fight scene I've ever seen. Damn. And if you like poles, you'll love <laughs> pedicab driver. Start fighting people. <laughs> it's going to make your life more entertaining. Uh, JT, your next pick. Um, yeah, it's a little bit of a departure from pole fighting, but that's okay. <laughs> sometimes I, I'm gonna like. I feel like this pick. I'm gonna inevitably sound like a boomer rock and roll dad. Um, but it's uh, Obayashi's 1992, The Rocking Horseman, and we talked about Obayashi very recently with Ryan um, and Bound for the Fields. And I mean, this is sort of the a link to um, my last like little spiel about Ozu, because I feel like we talked f- w- uh, with Bound for the Fields like a pretty direct comparison to Ozu because it's that one is uh, like very stylistically of like the early Ozu works and like feels like that. But Obayashi is linked to Ozu in other ways for me in the few films that I've seen because I think they have uh, really similar fixations, like in particular just how Obayashi handles the seeping like westernization like mostly through like capitalist means like rocking horsemen in particular it's uh th- this kid hears like a ventures song in the 60s and he becomes in love with like american rock and roll and the electric guitar and who who hasn't that happened to um but in general like beyond that like i think the link between obayashi and ozu for me is the perspective and how they depict youth and it's like a very gleeful like embrace of the naive perspective and just sort of the innocence and all the exploration and a lot of fun with that as well and uh rocking horsemen follow some young fellas um who start a rock and roll band um and a lot of it that I really vibe with is just the allure of the electrical power of rock and roll. Mm. And it's like follows like somewhat similar beats to a lot of uh, like coming of age stories. Cause it's like them figuring out their lives, like discovering that with rock and roll, you can get pussy like the classic sort of uh, ex- experiences there. But so much of the enjoyment of the film is like, just them jamming them hanging with the fellas a lot of it is them uh their camaraderie and just some scenes where you just you you feel a part of the group and obayashi builds such specific like character driven worlds that you can really luxuriate in and it will take really sentimental turns but never like in an insincere way and it always feels genuine because it's coming from like I don't know, such an earnest, specific place, like a Japan in Obayashi's mind that, like, I don't know, he wants to go back to, or at least experienced as, like, a youth and uh, wants to share with other people. 
and it was a really beautiful movie. If you like rock music, I think you'll like it. <laughs> if you've ever made a band, you'd probably like it. Hey, I love rock music. We, we've talked about classic rock quite a bit on this podcast, and I don't think there's any shame in being a <laughs> rock and roll boomer. I'm more into DJing and techno. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's just me, though. I'm very, like, slick. Yeah. No, I know you're slick. <laughs> I know you're slick. Uh, Why'd you say that twice? (laughs) What do you mean by that? I was planning on taking, uh, or not taking, I was planning on talking about this one uh, toward the end. I was going to go chronological, but I I just can't wait to talk about Chinese cinema. I'm just so jealous that my friends beat me to it. Uh, I'm going to talk about The World by Jia Jung-ke. I watched most of the Jia Jung-ke films I hadn't seen this year. And, you know, obviously shout out to Still Life and 24 City. Those are both like near masterpieces or just straight up masterpieces. But I wanted to talk about the world because this is a particularly potent film for this year. And just in general, uh, I think it's definitely a film for the future as well. Much like other Jia films like Mountains Made Depart. Uh, it's the first film that Jia Junka made that was approved by the Chinese government. And that is very important uh, to consider. And it's also a tour of like a simulated world. It's, you know, the, there's workers from rural provinces that go to Beijing to work at this Beijing world park. And it allow, this world park allows you to travel uh, to any like scaled down version of any place in the world. And um, I don't know, have you guys ever heard of this guy? He's this French guy, Baudrillard. He talks about like simulation and simulacra. I don't know if you guys know about I this. I actually read a little uh, Baudrillard recently when i watched a uh, hypernormalization nice and i was like i gotta got get on my smart shit yeah <laughs> and i read about the sort of uh television of the real mm. with the the way in which uh mass images and, and and art can sort of uh influence the direction of reality uh, this was in the context of the towers falling and and 90s disaster movies sort of prefacing that in hypernormalization Suffice to say, I do read and I am smart, and that's the only reason I mentioned it. <laughs> well, no, what you're saying about uh, like the real, though, within television, within mass culture, you know, within mass culture produced images, uh, this film plays with that in a very interesting way. Because, you know, mass culture isn't just TV and movies, it's also the places we go. You know, theme parks are mass culture, as are tourist destinations. And so this proposes an unreal version that might be more real than the real thing uh because guess what in this version of the world the towers are still up 9-11 didn't happen in this version that's of the, world. My, the one wish i wish i would had i wish the towers would, st- would still <laughs> they be should up. have called this movie a perfect world <laughs> yeah. hey wait for it <laughs> oh, i wish the towers were still up so bad <laughs> I wish I wish the planes had hit shady records instead, like the Eminem song said. I love there's like really there's like nine dipset songs where they open it up like New Welcome to New York, nine eleven, let's go. <laughs> uh, but I, I mean, also Baudrillard in Simulacrum and Simulation, or maybe it's vice versa, I forget the title, uh, also discusses Disneyland in those terms, talking about the real, of course, uh, and the problems with the real. And this film just is just like, all right, do you want to read Boring Philosophy by a French guy who was probably okay with pedophilia? 
or <laughs> do you want to watch a film by like the greatest filmmaker in the world? And so obviously you go for the film by the greatest filmmaker in the world. Uh, a quote from Jia Jun-ke on this, he says that underneath reality, uh, one does not find confirmation of ideological truths, but truth as an imposed and contingent construct. Films should not directly oppose ideology, but subtly punctuate and therefore fragment the solidity of worldviews. Now, I know, it's a lot of big words, blah, blah, blah. Uh, but taking that into consideration, what if the dominant ideology, ideology as we know it, does lean into simulation, you know? Then how do we pierce that without just showing simulation in film? Uh, and so I think this is a really important film for that. I mean, did 9-11 really happen? I don't know. <laughs> no, uh, of course it did. Uh, but the towers are still there in this version because also the American empire was more visible than ever in 2004. You know, this is when we're back on our we can't lose shit, taking over the world, world police style. Uh, I, I think that Jaws recreation goes beyond simulation and goes beyond piercing the simulation and is more commentary uh, than just that. But it's also a mix of commentary and a piercing of a simulation. And it's also just one of the most gorgeous films. Like, oh my God. Uh, I, just as a formalist, like Jaws' mix of montage and long take approaches is always stunning. Uh, he has just one of the great eyes for composition of the 21st century. Uh, you know, his eye for composition is only matched with how important the films he makes uh, are on a level of like their subject um so josh what, what about you josh what's another one from your list i uh watched one of my uh john ford blind spots this year i did uh my darling clementine which is obviously um another adaptation of sort of like the wyatt earp story i'm sure many of your listeners are familiar but i was just really taken by just how um you know um kind of bleak the sort of like post-war um sort of moral considerations of the film were despite the fact that the characters are you know a little bit um um warmer than you would expect of a story like that you know these it's a it's a lot of small gestures of characters yearning and feeling um kind of passive and relaxed obviously the iconic shot of um henry fonda leaning back in his chair and the whole thing has a a, a dreamier quality to it even as you know that this you know this story is is headed for uh doom and, and as with um, most John Ford stuff, obviously, it's just absolutely gorgeous. The, there are individual compositions in this film that just absolutely uh, blew me away. And yeah, I just, I, uh, I can't, couldn't not put a John Ford on this list. That's for sure. Ooh. Nice. Yeah, I moan after I burp now. <laughs> It's my new thing. It's my new kink. It feels sexual to burp. It is. <laughs> sexual. I like to burp, but sexual. <laughs> That's my new guy. Very manly man who is not quite ashamed, but not proud to admit that he's turned on by burping. I like burping. It's sexual. Burp Reynolds. <laughs> burp Reynolds. <laughs> 
That is a good one. <laughs> it's like every other body noise. It kind of gets sexualized, you know? Yeah. People into like nasty farts. A lot and of stuff people like. are into tooting. Yeah, it's like, what about the burps? Yeah. Brap hogs? Yeah. Brapping, brapping pogs. What? Brap, like, uh, like it's like a, what's it called? Onomatopoeia for a fart sound. Oh, man. Like, <laughs> brap. Someone showed me the, uh, the, have you, do you know the cake fart? I oh, like yeah. th- I threw up to that in college. I have a very weak stomach. Yeah. Someone showed me cake farts. It's and the just cake fart. <laughs> cake farts is where a girl literally farts it's on a cake. It's just like, but you see the asshole pucker into it's. It's <laughs> Have there's you just too never much seen from... anal porn before? No, I mean it's just like it, I don't know what it was. It just it <laughs> got the reaction. Seen anal porn before. <laughs> <laughs> it's not birthday material. No it's birthday cake. Yeah. yeah, I remember watching cake farts at my friend Jordan's house in eleventh grade, and I was like. All right, man. If that's what you're into, that's what you're into. Didn't you guys like see girl, two girls, one cup? Yeah, exactly. That's that so stuff? much nastier. No? Yeah, remember, dude, like, two I, girls, one cup was middle school. Like that was. Yeah, that so was, yeah. I, I would like go to my friend's house and like his older cousin would just show us like fucked up videos. Of, yeah. Like, well, that's how you got into getting, cinema. Well, yeah, yeah. I was like, yeah. What's the most fucked up movie of all time? I want to watch it. Thirteen. Yeah, uh, that's what we're talking about. How not just how we got into cinema, but the great cinema that we continue to get into year after year. Um, we heard one more from Josh already, right? Yes. Yeah. All right, Nate. What, what's your next pick? Actually, I'm so sorry. We're gonna hear from another friend, and then we're oh, gonna get Nate's pick. And I'm gonna be gone. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> hey, extended clip. This is. Good friend of the podcast, writer, all around, general raconteur, and of course, co-host of Hotbox the Cinema, Nathan Smith, um, at Trillmore Girls. Yeah, how's it going? Happy New Year uh, to you all. I hope that 2021 is full of a lot of pleasant, rewarding, invigorating, exciting, moving images. Um, You know, 2020 was, of course, goes without saying, a weird year. Uh, Myself, I feel like the kind of the collection of movies I ended up watching was appropriately weird and kind of all over the place. Um, But I did did watch a lot of great stuff um, and a lot of great things for the first time. And, you know, I know that a lot of people are saying that this is the year that cinema didn't happen, but there were some movies that I enjoyed. Um, I mean, you know, everybody likes First Cow. I liked that one. Bloody Nose, Empty Pockets, I thought was really, really incredible. Um, of course, I've got to show up to represent for Tenant Hive. I'm a longtime Nolan skeptic, but he won me over with this truly uh, Borges-like labyrinth of a thriller um, I'm just all into the inverted temporal Cold War nonsense. Like, yeah, it maybe doesn't make a whole lot of sense. I don't know, but I don't really care um, because he did it. He went. He went sicko mode. He went demon time. I don't know. He he just uh, inverted my feelings about his about him his work as a filmmaker. Honestly, uh, that's a that's a very Gene Shallow way to put it. I think. Um, I also really enjoyed Josh Trank's Capone, and I'm trying to get Josh Trank tourism off the ground. Uh, contrary to what you heard uh, in the mainstream, lamestream media, Craig Zobel's The Hunt is really amazing. Um, Kyoshi Kurosawa's To the Ends of the Earth. Hubie Halloween of course. Anyways, you know, there's there's some other movies I enjoyed. I could go on. Um, in terms of retrospective viewing, I don't know. 
Happy Madison, the Fairley Brothers, Oliver Stone, Johnny Toe, Troy Hark. Those are some of the filmmakers that really define the year for me. Um, Colin Eastwood. I know Malcolm is going to talk about Bridges of Madison County and that movie. I also finally saw this year and it uh, made me a whole bucket of tears. <laughs> uh, so anyways, I'll shut the fuck up and uh, go back to ripping the bong. But I just wanted to hop in and wish all a very happy new year. Oh, man, Nathan, I, I, I can't believe you, you came here from from. Brooklyn, <laughs> all the way B- from BKLN, all the way from BKN to talk to us. Uh, but thank you so much. That that was lovely. Uh, Nate, what what's your next pick? I have a three way tie uh, for third, uh, as I do with most of my picks. Uh, <laughs> my three way tie is uh, James Benning's California trilogy. Uh, in addition to going Asian mode, I went smart guy mode and I all and I watched very, very difficult movies that I would never have had the attention span to watch if I was going to work every day. So I watched like twelve James Benning movies in the course of a week, which did a lot for me. Like I started getting really quiet, going on a lot of walks, just a real, real recalibration of who I was as a person. I uh, loved them. They're great. And of course, the best ones are the ones that are about places I know, uh, such as California. And the California trilogy is a uh, three part look at various sections of California. The first part is the Central Valley in El Valley Centro. Second part is the greater Los Angeles area and the surrounding mountains and valleys in Los. And then the third part is random segments of the California wilderness in the film Segobi. These movies are all, if you don't know James Benning, of course, they're all very, uh, they don't have a plot. They have almost no humans in them whatsoever. The only humans you would see are people driving vehicles or planes or things like that. And the only connections that you can make are sort of ones that you kind of make yourself after watching a shot elapse for one or two minutes, three minutes, whatever. And you watch nature kind of unfold. You watch the different types of nature contrast with each other. And you watch sometimes uh, man-made structures and their interaction with nature as time elapses. It's a good thing to vibe to. You can get as exactly as much out of it as you put into it. Mm-hmm. If you want to just vibe, go ahead. If you want to write a doctoral dissertation, you can also do that. Uh, it is at, The movies are as smart as you are, basically. Mm. And I am very smart, so I got a lot out of the, <laughs> the California trilogy. I loved uh, just the way the movies show the manipulation of land and nature, the way that they show... Uh, the machines of environmental destruction as California was plagued by fires in 2020 and uh, prior years. uh, We see just how, you know, precarious the building of civilization on such a volatile ground can be when things are going well, things are going badly and, you know, we're not doing right by our environment. These things come back to haunt us. James Benning depicts the process of environmental destruction in, in very beautiful ways and very sort of like he gets the exact right angle of everything he goes to. He goes to a quarry. He shows you exactly how the quarry fits into the landscape around it and what it uproots. He goes to show you how a freeway juts in and cuts in to uh, a mountain and a landscape. He shows you in El Valley Centro how uh, a sort of a shipping boat, a, a, what are they called? Big shipping boats. Cargo boat? Cargo boat, whatever. A big cargo boat that goes across what looks like a field, right? It looks like a plane, but the way that the the sort of hill crests and you don't see the horizon line, on that horizon line is a man-made canal cutting through a series of, 
uh, industrialized, industrial-sized farms. Mm. And through these industrial-sized farms cuts this sea vessel that seems to be almost floating across land. It doesn't feel right. It feels evil. When you drive through the Central Valley, you kind of get that vibe. When you drive through Los Angeles at night, you are struck with some sort of senses of the beauty of the area, but also the sort of malfeasances of urban design. Benning evokes both of those things in depicting the sort of the, the highways of L.A. at night, but also the major uh, the major water uh constructs that have to sort of feed the city and nourish the city all of these things go into making a city in los and then in segobi which may be my favorite i don't know yet but he shows just true dehumanized nature except for very rare moments of human intervention and those moments are always very striking to me one of the most striking shots of the whole trilogy of which you know every shot is a striking shot really but the most striking one is he puts his camera down, and you don't know where it is, the middle of a forest. He is inside of a forest fire. There is a fire directly in front of the camera, smoke on all sides, and you watch as a wind comes through the shot, and the fire, over the course of three minutes, extinguishes. It's it's genuinely, I don't know, it's like watching a, a birth. It's like watching, like a, you don't... You never see things like that in a movie. You never see things like that in your life. It's It's like somebody... It's like somebody let you in an alien spaceship and let you fly around to the most important things happening on Earth at that one moment. I mean, the guy's, I don't know how he does it. He seems to me, when you watch these movies, he he makes you feel like what you think he is, which is a guy who has a camera slung over his back and he's just constantly wandering the wilderness, never stopping to eat or sleep, just putting his camera up at the exact perfect shot to, and perfect moment to capture something you'll never see before or again. He's the greatest. There's there's one shot in Los of a reservoir kind of at the north end of the San Fernando Valley. And by the way, if you watch Los, look up James Benning Los Google Maps and someone like mapped out a tour of all of the locations. And you could see like the it's also interesting to see the Google Maps uh, car camera version of each of those locations versus Benning's masterful compositions. Because, you know, if you watch it, his compositions aren't that showy. They're, they're all very beautiful. He's clearly someone who like understands composition as good as anyone does. They're not that showy. Then you look at the Google maps version. Then you go back to his composition. You're like, Oh wow. He literally did study the area, study the tools he's using and find the perfect place for his camera to sit, you know, uh, and at the perfect time too. And you said there's no people. The one uh, group of people I do remember though, there's like some people playing soccer at a park in Pacoima. Yeah. yeah and yeah. it's like kind of distant too. The soccer players only take up like half the screen. The other half of the screen is kind of the open park. Some people walking around. Uh, it's great. It's just like that wandering through the sprawl of Los Angeles yeah. feeling. Uh, plus all the smart shit Nate said. Yeah, and then also like the the thing you said about the 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 water facility in in Pacoima. The whole trilogy is structured around uh, water, which is it leads you into sort of the political component of Benning's um, filmography. He's a very political filmmaker. He never ex- explicitly says so, except in a couple of his films. But all of the movies constantly refer back to the water supply of California, which if you've seen Chinatown, yeah. you know is a pretty significant component of life here. Uh, the movie starts off with a with a depiction of a sort of uh, a lake or, or maybe a man-made body of water that has a sort of uh, pit in the middle of it where a bunch of water is 
dumping straight in like a big hole like a black hole opened in the water horizon and then that's the first shot of El Valley Centro and you and you see water throughout half the shots and how how irrigation works how water flows from outside of LA into the city I was driving uh back from around the area of Mount Whitney and I noticed that half of the land up over there is owned by the city of Los Angeles mm-hmm. because the water is is taken from those areas and flows on these pipes and aqueducts hundreds of miles across the desert all the way to Los Angeles and over the course of that drive you see tons of signs from people saying recall Gavin Newsom fire Gavin Newsom (laughs) fix the water rights in California (laughs) all of this shit gets is constantly thrown in your face in California but Benning is a really really good chronicler of that without ever explicitly saying so and the last shot not to spoil it, of Segobi is that same lake, but with the water drained. So you see the man-made circular structure that saps the water out of from the from the higher water line. Damn. As Damn. someone who drove through the Central Valley today, my favorite sign, and I always see this sign, is it, it's is it really wasting water if it's used to grow food? Which, <laughs> which brings up an interesting question. I do. I it's do like think. a Buddhist monk. Sort <laughs> yeah. of thing. Also, it smelled like shit. Yeah, it smells so uh, goddamn bad in the Central Valley. Yeah. yeah, what was that? Oh, that streak of the five where it's literal, like seal yourself in. Yeah, by Cowschwitz. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and it's also like the type of stuff that they grow over there, like almonds. It, it is like water intensive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Farming and yeah, stuff the pistachio like thing. Yeah, the Resnick yeah, family. Yeah. There's a whole thing about that. Um, yeah, I mean to contrast uh, Benning's capturing of natural beauty, I think. This next pick is some of the most beautiful, like very clearly artificial images that I've ever seen. And this is Busby Berkeley's 1943's uh, The Gang's All Here, which is absolutely beautiful. It was like a very strange experience watching this like very strange movie. It was like one very late night. I uh, I just I had recently downloaded this flick, knew nothing about it, and I was like scrubbing through it, and I was like, "What the fuck could possibly go on?" So that gets all these like images in it, and it was like one in the morning, a, a beautiful, beautiful journey. But um, it's there's a very loose like romantic comedy plot that happens about um, a soldier. Uh, returning at some point during World War II, like meeting a woman, whatever. But Berkeley uses like each like non-musical scene to just sort of lead into amazingly luxurious, extravagant musical set pieces that have some of the most spectacular choreography I've ever seen. One of the most like iconic, I think, from this movie is it has Carmen Miranda singing Lady in the Tutti Fruity Hat, where there are these like broads swinging around fat big bananas. <laughs> it's it's great. Um, but it just builds to like this fever pitch of just all images where like I think truly the most captivating moments for me are like the final sequence, which it goes um, from this song where it's like um, singing about like pol- polka dots and then you get these like red electric like l- red lights that they do a little number with and that ultimately transitions into this like insane kaleidoscope effect where it's like these honestly like very psychedelic imagery that goes on screen and from that 
the Im- the kaleidoscope image opens up in mm-hmm. the middle and you have the heads of all the main characters of the movie come through yes. the center of this kaleidoscope image Jeez. like singing the final song and then like you you get a little mosaic where all of the heads are like lined up like just singing oh at the God. end it's it is so fucking crazy and it's um like an hour 40 mm-hmm. a breeze it's just like I mean, at the I was reading that at the time it was like Fox's uh, most expensive picture, mm. and it just it, it blows my mind that they gave him. I mean, Berkeley obviously like a very established talent, like great choreographer, but like to just do this like pretty rambling movie that's all just uh just driven by beautiful images. Damn, yeah, that sounds it, awesome. No, it's it's amazing. I literally watched it last night. You know, it was similar similar reaction to JT. I was. I was floored and it is like it's also funny because like the musical sequences are very like innocuous like the like what the one you're referring to the final one is about like how the polka dot outlasted polka music or something <laughs> like that. and like uh yeah the 2d fruity hat like Godard. Yeah. <laughs> and like the 2d fruity hat one is like uh just a woman singing about how much dick she gets because her hat is so sick. Everyone's like, all the guys love me because my sick fruit hat. And, and and it's, I mean, these sequences, I mean, the way, I mean, they're so great on so many levels. Because the choreography obviously is there with Berkeley, But even the way he like films these sequences is just amazing. There's like kind of like a roving camera that'll, that'll just end up on very interesting frames. And a lot of this, you know, takes place within like a, a place where they perform musical sequences. Like it's basically like a club where like you see women dance on stage and then at the end you're like, all right, you can go dance with them now. Uh, <laughs> might, might need to bring that back. That might be a business venture. But, um, it, and it's like, he, he even like finds a way to make like these very stage centric musical sequences, very cinematic. And, uh, yeah, I was, cause like, of course I was expecting great choreography, you know, very colorful palette. But uh, Busby with the camera, also killer. Mm-hmm. Great movie. What's your next pick? Oh, yeah, I have to talk again now. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I'm going to go King of New York mode and choose Ooh. King of New York. Um, <laughs> and this is a movie I this probably, this is probably, I guess, my number one movie of the year just because I watched it like five times, mm-hmm. became obsessed with it. And I, I mean, I think this is just a very precise, perfect work. I mean, I, I love kind of like the contrasts of lifestyle and how kind of Walken is kind of the in-between. He's really gunning for high society. At the same time, he wants to change it. At the same time, he deals with kind of like this underworld of, you know, drug users and killers and stuff like that. And uh, just him c- trying to get that upwards mobility and, you know, not it always going to be out of reach is just, I don't know, it's, I like that storyline. And... I mean, of course, the the Walken performance is next level. Maybe mm-hmm. maybe my favorite acting performance of all time. I mean, he yeah. I think and I read somewhere that like Ferraro was watching Nosferatu a lot. I mean, there's even a scene where uh, they go to a movie theater and people are watching it. And like, yeah, uh, uh, Walken gives a very like vampiric performance. But of course, it's not without its eccentricities. And I think like this movie is such a great balance of like style. And just kind of like uh, letting actors kind of take the stage as well. Like mm-hmm. in the way uh, Ferrara, um, you know, molds these characters and the way it's written by like some guy named like Nick St. John or mm-hmm. whatever. Yeah. Regular uh, collaborator. Yeah. Yeah. And um, 
it really allows them to, you know, show off these eccentricities, whether it's, you know, Walken, Fishburne, or even, uh, you know, uh, David Caruso, who gives an yeah. all-time performance. And <laughs> I think all the cop scenes are so funny because, like, uh, I love the Irish wedding scene because it's, I think Ferraro is depicting, like, a, you know, a circle of hell, <laughs> the Irish wedding, just being around a bunch of, like, Irish cops making like very <laughs> salty jokes about where they're at in life, but yeah. you know, not really meaning it. And uh, I mean, yeah, I I really love this movie. I, I can't wait to watch this one again. I have it pre-ordered the uh, the 4K from Arrow. Uh, it, this was the first Ferrara I saw, and I was like, oh, great movie. This guy's pretty interesting, you know. And then I go back through the filmography in order from Driller Killer on. And when I got back to King in New York, I was like, oh, this is a flat out masterpiece. And, you know, while he has more experimentally like audacious kind of films in the 90s, stuff like New Rose Hotel and The Blackout are fucking crazy. Uh, King of New York just feels so pristine to me. And maybe it's because that's the one that's been the most pristinely preserved. Uh, I, I'd love to see a 4K of The Blackout in its right aspect ratio, but I don't think that's coming anytime soon. Uh, but Walken's performance just brings something that the others by like Modine or Defoe throughout his 90s films don't quite do. It's just kind of a, it's kind of a meeting of the minds. It's almost like Walken at his height, even though you know he, he has a longstanding collaboration with Ferrari. But it is kind of walking, maybe at his height, meeting Ferrara at one of his many heights, you know, Uh, and they don't clash, obviously, they work seamlessly together, Uh, but it does almost feel like the film of two artists with how much Walken's style, uh, like, helps write this film, kind of. Yeah, I love, I love The King of New York, you know, a lot of people said, that Pete Davidson wasn't ready to be a leading man. And I, I think he's shown that he has the chops. Uh, I think he's, is ready to move into the big time. Uh, th- I think this might be the movie that gets Judd Apatow his Oscar nomination. Uh, I think shout he, out Billy Burr and Bill Burr. You love to see him act. I mean, he just, he really brings it every time. Uh, it's so cool to see him just kind of put on a character. I loved hearing kid Cuddy on the, you know, the big speakers at the theater. I thought that was yeah. kind of transported me back to my, lonesome youth king of new york best movie of 2020 definitely yeah um <laughs> i'm on the pursuit of happiness uh <laughs> wait okay i do have a question about king of new york so I, I i haven't seen it in a long time and i i, I scrubbed through it today because i just wanted to just remind me it was like i remember all of the like the big gunfight onward i remember like the last half hour but one thing that kind of struck me and i think i i haven't seen a christopher walken movie in a long time does he usually look that much like Jeff Wells? Or, <laughs> or He's usually, that that is that is a very specifically I, aged walk-in. I think. I, like, I think New Rose Hotel. He looks more like Wells, don't you? Yeah, think? A yeah, li- yeah, yeah, a little bit. He's a little more worn down in New Did, Rose yeah. Hotel. A little more dead-eyed. Does he also <laughs> have the sort of like very wispy hair that he has in King of New York that is very Wellsian? I don't know. Yeah, it's pretty similar. It's, it, the hair is really what, what sells it. And while we're talking about 2020 cinema, obviously Jeff Wells unleashed one of the great moving images of the, the young decade. It's that was just fantastic. Uh, you guys got to see it. Uh, if you go to Jeff Wells's, I mean, you, I assume you already follow him. If you listen to this, you follow Jeff Wells. You got an RSS feed. You got Google alerts. Whenever he posts, you know his shit. Go to his page, any page. You'll see his Christmas video that he made with his uh, with his wife. Don't know how they met, but I love him. Uh, very, <laughs> believe in him. Uh, there's a great video that 
um, you can tell was directed by someone with a Russian sensibility. <laughs> yes. Because it is just, it is sl- packed to the gills with like emojis that Americans don't use. Yes. Uh, <laughs> just really a lot of like the the ones where like the eyes are going crazy. Like, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, also intellectual montage. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And so it's it's, it's Jeff, intellectual it's montage. Jeff and his wife, and his wife is in a Mrs. Claus outfit. And Jeff is in you know the Marlon Brando. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> the, Wally the wild Brando. one. The wild one leather <laughs> yeah. jacket. Because he only has one costume, um, and it's himself. And they're both wishing us all peace, prosperity, uh, health. And all of these uh, wishes are expressed through silent uh, eight and a half by 11 papers that have the Russian word for health, the English word for health, and a corresponding emoji that usually doesn't correspond held up at the TV or the, the camera. They then drop it. And my favorite thing about the, the video is when they drop the eight and a half by 11 printer paper right onto the floor in such a way that catches the sunlight reflecting through the window and it absolutely blasts the camera (laughs) with a ton of white light that increases every time they drop one of the cards. That's that's something that only happens. uh, That's like new filmmaking. You know, that is digital textures building with natural light. That is not something you would get on cellular. Eat your heart out. Michael Mann. Uh, I also love, I also love Jeff's performance in this video because we, we think, cause there's, there is a soundtrack to this. like, it's Christmas, it's Christmas music. But we, when we see the first snippets of him, it seems like Jeff is like shaking his body to dance along. And the further you get into the video, you realize that he's not in any sort of rhythm or beat with the music. And it literally just seems like he's bored and really wants to not be in this shot. He's fidgeting. He hates it. And you can tell he's looking directly into the middle distance. Like he's not looking away, but he's not looking at the camera. He's looking just past the camera. And it, and it, you can almost feel like you can see a very, very pronounced thousand yard stare on him. I mean, this guy has seen it all and 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 you could you feel so much of what that that outlaw journalist has been through in his long <laughs> career in just in just a minute of 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 stationary camera shot it's beautiful wow well, it's it's great when it's like because it's like the the first words that are used are not exactly like i don't know they're not exactly happiness but then like i think like joy is dropped and like wells is not even smiling like he's not <laughs> no joy to be found but I will say the under underlying message of love did kind of warm me up a little bit. You yeah, know, I, we I know love we, love here. I mean, yeah. I, I know we like to joke around, but I, I think Wells and his you know wife, it's a nice relationship. It was a great investment. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it made me want to find someone I love and love them. So, <laughs> Well, from one outlaw... Uh, of cinema that the establishment, you know, chewed wait, up and spit also, out to wait, another. I'm oh, sorry, I'm sorry, but I only know Jeff Wells through like people ridiculing him. Was there like at a point where he was like? I mean, he's been like an accredited okay. film writer forever. He's had inside scoops. He's had uh, interviews with hot shots. You know, he's okay. you know, he's the real deal. I he's, think he was one of the first people to be like an. Uh, internet Oscar prognosticator. Uh, yeah, he is an OG in that field. And so the re- companies who have just not updated their like advertising spend in uh, 20 years yeah. have been paying him six-figure income to talk about Oscars. Yeah. <laughs> and, so he's OCJ? Uh, yeah, kind of. And one guy in our Discord physically gets his screeners from Jeff Wells, who will not be named, but uh, we do have an inside connection. Wells is like if Lights, Camera, Jackson... 
uh, went into the Black Lodge, <laughs> was there for 25 years, and then came out as Mr. C. <laughs> Down to the jacket. <laughs> oh, man. Wells is like if LCJ kind of felt soured by the sexual revolution. Kind of felt like he missed out on like kind of the greatest moments on that. <laughs> well... Not to repeat a transition, but I I felt pretty good when I came up with it a a minute ago uh, from one bad boy of cinema that the industry turns the other cheek to uh, that, you know, their their excellence is only denied by the mainstream liberal media, uh, Jeff Wells, to Jerry Lewis, who in 1982, hard for this guy to make a movie, uh, made a couple movies like late in his career. Hardly Working was the last one he made before this one. In Hardly Working, in reviving a classic character like us, he also did go Asian mode, but in a much more offensive way in that movie. <laughs> so that's what that means. Yeah, okay. <laughs> you guys have been talking about it all night, and I was, I just, I'm just watching movies here. I don't know. It was like a mode, uh, but I don't, I don't know. I feel like Hardly Working. I I, I should talk about just for uh, just for a flash before I get to uh, Smorgasbord. Uh, because Hardly Working is a film about him not being able to make a film, kind of. And it's him doing all these jobs and not being able to get them. And it's it's such a depressing movie. And there's a scene that I compared to The Devil, probably, uh, where he's just, like, on the dance floor, just fucking zoning out. Like, when he's trying to be a DJ and he's at a nightclub, and he's just, like, standing there, kind of. And it's, like, really sad, you know? And I was like, is this really... Ha-? Like, how is he going to get even more sad than this? And I read that his final film is about him trying to kill himself. I'm like, oh, my God, this is... No, it's it's his funniest movie, probably. It's one of the most ridiculous things I've ever seen. It's literally about him messing up as much as any of his movies are about him messing up uh, after sliding and slipping on the lobby floor of his psychiatrist for like three minutes jerry finally does see his shrink and he recounts his life of misdeeds small and large goofs a failed suicide attempt or two uh and it's kind of all building towards this in the mouth of madness style ending where in that film uh sam neill's character goes insane and then watches the movie of his life while jerry uh starts insane on this movie and through the power of therapy is able to transfer his insanity over to his psychologist and then goes to see the movie of his life as a normal guy who can just enjoy movies uh and it's one of the most touching things in that regard and all of the little parts of his life that he goes into just absolutely break like any traditional approach to something like that i mean he's in like an old-timey period french movie from like the 1800s at one point like clearly he's not just recounting a life like you would in a film like this he's mining this flashback structure for maximum kind of sketch comedy potential, but is still able to thread through performance and filmmaking so much sadness and just like weight of a full career through all of these vignettes, you know? Uh, His form is still as good as it was when he worked in the classic Hollywood system, but it doesn't feel right because he has that like 1980s sheen to the cinematography. It's very strange and it's, like he did a really godly fucking promo run for this on Letterman. There's like a two-parter 
in very early Letterman, like 1981, I guess, when this came out. I think it came out in 82, maybe. Uh, slow, limited distribution, one of those deals. But uh, he just like absolutely goes off on Letterman for like 40 minutes. He's throwing cigarettes up in the air and catching them, doing the funny faces, screaming all over the place. Just like a young Letterman doesn't even know what the fuck to do, you know? But it still feels off because it's like, this guy's old. And he's also kind of promoing King of Comedy, too. Like, And he's talking about that. It's like, this is a legend, but he's still doing the kid, you know, uh, in him that will never die. And it's just like such a simultaneously depressing and hopeful film because of that. Uh, And I wish there was a comedy like star slash filmmaker that even approached his greatness since. But, uh, you know, we can always just remember the classics and watch Jerry Lewis movies. I want the viewers who have seen this or haven't to just think about this for a second. I'm only describing scenes from the film. Maybe you're someone who has never fit in. Maybe you have a hard time talking to people. Maybe you walk funny. (laughs) Maybe you have a hard, when you sit down, you don't have the right posture. You feel like you're not sitting in the chair the same way everybody else sitting in a chair. When everyone's walking in through a door, you're walking out of it. Nothing works. And all you can ask yourself, if you can even ask yourself this, is am I fucking up? Am I, am I doing something wrong? Is this somehow built in me to, to constantly feel like a square peg in a round hole? To borrow a quote from Jerry Lewis's character, well, you probably have autism. But... <laughs> Don't get but, the vaccine. But <laughs> my point is, is that that's what Jerry Lewis's character goes through in Cracking Up or Smorgasbord, whatever you yeah. want to call it. And that to me was like, I, I was more overcome by seeing that level of representation yeah. on the no, screen. I mean, to be completely honest, like he's had a couple of films about mental illness like on the surface. Yeah. They are both very old-timey boomer approaches to mental illness. But nonetheless... I think his comedy registers with me in my uh, twisted, fucked up brain uh, because we have a similar sensibility in that regard. Whether it's our similar space on the spectrum or just our tastes in terms of moving image aesthetic, you know? Uh, I I think it's maybe a little bit of both. And that's why I love Jerry so much uh, behind and in front of the camera. I think the only way that this movie could have spoken more to my lived experience is if his character had created a ranked list of movies he saw in the year (laughs) and put it online. (laughs) Because it's really, it does feel, it hits very close to home for a certain type of person. I'll put it that way. I mean, I I kind of, the way you're talking about it, I kind of view Freddy got fingered in a similar matter yeah but and also kind of like i feel like the tone that's in freddie got fingered is like anti-social but not really bitter or Mm. anything like that it is just pure pure individual yeah yeah. absolutely um josh what's your next pick the next film uh is the film uh, the train from uh 1964 directed by john frankenheimer behind uh such films as like seconds and ronin and the manchurian candidate and uh, the train uh, snuck up on me as actually being, other than Seconds, probably my favorite uh, John Frankenheimer film that I've seen. It is a men on a mission film about um, a bunch of uh, soldiers trying to save a bunch of artwork that is being stolen by the Nazis and, and being taken away on a train. And there's a little bit of a moral conflict between the idea of you know, putting bodies on the line to save art, the importance of, of art, and 
personally, I just kind of have a theory that uh, the truest, purest cinema is just really any movie that features uh, prominently a train. And so this movie, uh, by that definition, is just one of the best movies that I've I've ever seen. John Frankenheimer's action in this with, you know, using real trains is really incredible. And at one point he has trains like crash into each other and there's just really impressive large scale destruction on it. And he shoots it in this like inky, perfectly composed ode to just the tangible mechanics of history. There's a lot of natural landscapes and there's a lot of sort of like steel and oil and soot and 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 steam and I I really liked his focus once again on kind of like the sweaty bleeding, you know, men who operate this kind of machinery. And uh, in the end, I kind of got this idea from it that, you know, art is an expression of, of beauty and life and a dream of a world, obviously, beyond war and labor and machinery and misery. And that's why it's so important to preserve it to a lot of the people in the film. But unfortunately for some people, that's just, you know, the world's not quite there yet. And uh, they experience a lot of that on the road to saving that art. Oh, wow. I haven't seen that one yet. Looks pretty cool though i've heard good things so have i what is it uh the train by john frankenheimer oh good yeah no, I seen it. okay sounds train yeah. that sounds good i mean to recap his other picks since we haven't talked about them truck turner you guys seen that no, no. isaac hayes exploit truck exploitation movie haven't seen it no uh my darling clementine you guys seen that oh, one yeah, classic yeah yeah yeah. yeah 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 i've seen that one too <laughs> <laughs> Um, let's hear from another friend. How about Logan Kenny? Hello, it's me, Logan. You may remember me from the extended clip episode Tron Legacy slash Knight of Cups. If you have heard that, I'm so, so sorry that you have to hear me again. But because the lads from extended clip have invited me back to talk about some of my favorite first watches of the year, uh, you're going to have to be stuck with me from uh, two to four minutes, uh, as Eddie put it. So we're going to talk about five of them now. So number five is Vincente Manelli's The Clock, which is a perfect entry into the two strangers meet in a city, they walk around a bunch, they start to fall in love, they kiss, They one of them has to go, there's like the open-ended ending of whether or not they'll ever see each other again. You know, uh, movies like Dogfight or Before Sunrise or The Sun is Also a Star, they're all good, they're all very warm favourites in my heart and the clock is right up there with all of them it's just a just a wonderful film it's my favorite manalia of the eight or nine i've seen i saw a bunch of his this year um he's he's real great um but this this movie's really special to me and then number four we've got uh long day's journey into night which is just it's just so good um i watched it for the first time on my laptop and i was very distracted and yet it still has that kind of mesmerizing pull that i felt the need to go see in cinemas in 3d about a month after and i saw it then and i just it's the best uh purely transcendent experience i've had in the cinema this year and will be the last i had in for a long time it looks like so it's very special in my heart and that way i think the ending is one of the most beautiful final shots I've ever seen, especially with the symbolic and dreamlike resonance of its of its texture and its meaning. Uh, it really, it really got to me, and I've seen it three times this year, um, which I don't do very often unless it's Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace. Um, so you can tell it's it's about that level of quality. Uh, and number three, we have uh, Tropical Malady or Malady. 
I don't know how to say that word because that's a word that was used by 1800 surgeons uh, to describe a plague. Um, unless I'm confusing the word with something else, but that doesn't matter. What does matter is it's one of the greatest films of all time. And it's somehow only number three on my best uh, first watches of the year. Um, I'm not even going to try and pronounce his full name because I am terrible at reading. So, Joe is one of the best filmmakers in the world. Uh, Uncle Boon Me was my favorite first watch of last year. And Cemetery of Splendor still has one of my favorite ever theatrical moments. Uh, when the camera moves at the end after so much stasis, it, it just, like, I felt my soul escaping my body at that moment. Uh, and Tropical Melody might be his best film that I've seen. Uh, it's just indescribable. Uh, there's nothing quite like the last 15 minutes of it. I just, I think everyone should see it at some point. It's a masterpiece. Uh, and number two, uh, we have uh, Jonathan Demme's American Playhouse TV film from the 80s, Who Am I This Time? Which is just the most wholesome and loving film about creation and communication I think I've ever seen. It's just it's indescribable. It is one of the best things I've ever seen. And it has possibly uh, my favorite leading actor performance in anything uh, by Christopher Walken, who has just stunned and mesmerized me this entire year, thinking about how beautifully intimate and just unbelievable he is in this film. The the vulnerability shedding into like this sincere passion for creativity is wonderful and number one is john cassavetes love streams which is like getting stabbed in the fucking chest over and over and over again and it's the best film i've seen this year uh so thank you guys for letting me on uh happy new year yeah i love that one too <laughs> do i tell you which one it is no no no. no i know it's good okay yeah. <laughs> i think i think you do love that one too oh <laughs> nice I don't know if you've seen it. Well, fucking tell me. I want to know now. <laughs> I'm trying to think if you've seen I'm it. I'm the why. You can't, you can't place me. What do you guys think about Tropical Malady? Oh, yeah, I've seen it. I, um, you didn't really like it, did you? No, I, I just didn't connect to it. I think you know, sometimes there's a good movie in front of you, and for some reason or other, you just didn't connect. I, I need to give that. it a rewatch. You know what? I actually kind of felt that way the first time I watched Syndromes in a Century. And then we rewatched it for the podcast, and it became my favorite Apichapong. Yeah. His think, movies sometimes take two goes. I think that was my first Apichapong, too. So, yeah. yeah. Uh, it was my first Apichapong, Tropical Malady, and it absolutely blew me away. I had not even heard the phrase slow cinema when I watched it, you know? I didn't know what any of that shit was. Absolutely knocked me over. Uh, I didn't think I'd like it as much when I revisited it like a year and a half ago. Still top notch. Yeah. You seen it? Guy turns into a tiger. Exactly. <laughs> you seen it? No, I haven't seen I it. I was right. You were right. I, and it's not a judgment call. It's because I memorized your letterbox. <laughs> <laughs> You're what we call a Jerry Lewis type. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's why you saw the certain face I made when I was trying to figure out if Malcolm had seen it or not. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Jerry Lewis, so good at making the faces. I don't think anyone's ever done it better. Uh, just another quick shout out. Nate, what's your next pick? Uh, once again, I have a double feature. Oh. I have about 12 movies in my top five. <laughs> uh, no, it, this is uh, my Kiyoshi Kurosawa spot. Ooh. I got into him. I watched Pulse and I watched Cure. I could talk about them both for an hour. I'm going to talk about Pulse for like a minute. Uh, Pulse is, you know, it's a movie about the internet. Uh, it's a movie where... Uh, you get uh, you log into a website that makes you want to kill yourself. I think we can all relate to that. 
And it's uh, it's a yeah, it's a website about how the internet gives you demons and how there are parasites creeping out from the internet that are slowly poisoning the world. It's just kind of yeah, that's exactly what life is, has <laughs> always been, and always will be. Um, we were born under that, and we're gonna die under that. And Pulse really wants you to remember that. Um, there, I, there's something about the texture of the images that yeah, feels like yeah. you're, you're trying, like if you tried to scratch at the screen, you couldn't get through it. You know, yeah. like it feels like it has a tough like layer on the exterior of the image or something. I I don't have. I, I have things I can say about this movie that I think would come across on an audio medium, but you're absolutely right that that watching this movie uh, or, or talking about this movie, there's nothing to actually watching it. And even watching it, you can watch it on a stream on your shitty television. You're still going to feel the depth of the blacks in the shots that, that Kurosawa built. It's a very dark film. It's a very like uh, muted color palette film for the most part, and you feel that more than in any other movie. It doesn't look like any other movie you've ever seen. There's ghostliness, there's horror aspects to it. All of that feels almost to me a little bit perfunctory. To me, what drives the feeling of the film is the interaction with ghosts that come from just sort of logging on. That this sort of like anytime you create, you you create, you log onto the internet, anytime you do anything on the internet, you create a kind of ghost uh, sort of uh sort of residue of yourself you leave a part of yourself in in the middle of the ether and that literally comes in the film when characters who kill themselves are shown as just sort of a a collection of black soot on the wall where their body used to be Mm -hmm. that to me feels a lot like using the internet and it feels a lot like you know the the as we give more and more of ourselves to this sort of digital behemoth that will that has already consumed us all and is in the process of digesting all of us uh that it's a part of our lives in in a very heartbreaking way and this movie hypothesizes possible escape from it but mostly documents the conversion of human beings into ghosts who are trapped in a sort of endless recursive loop left behind by their online selves and that to me is you know the movies from 2001 uh not necessarily exactly you know a perfect depiction of what the internet is, but in spirit, it nails what it is to be part of a broad technological nexus way bigger than yourself. And that to me is scarier than any horror movie aspect of it. Absolutely. I think, I think the, what this movie does, it kind of predates the kind of like going on chat roulette. And when you match with a new person, kind of the dead stare they have in their eyes as they yeah. look back at you. Um, oh, I'm, I'm used to like my limited exposure to chat roulette. When I got a new screen, usually there was only one eye looking at me. Yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> I, I was going to say. I, I thought I was going to make a joke that you're one of the guys who jack yeah. off. Yeah, on chat roulette. No, it was. I was on the receiving end all too many times. And you stayed. And Just you two him. eyes looking at each other. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, there is there, to bring it back to pulse. Not to be a uh, yeah. throw water on your yeah. weird sex fire over here. <laughs> But to bring it back to Pulse, I think the 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 conveying of the idea of loneliness in Pulse is like unrivaled in any movie without ever hitting the nail on the head of like this is a movie about lonely people. It's this is a movie about people who in their engagement with the Internet and the mysterious program on the Internet that wants you to kill yourself, they become a, lo- a, a an avatar of loneliness. They become something uh, as lonely as lonely can be without ever hammering that point home. And 
in doing that, I think it creates a much more convincing portrayal. I think there's 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 few movies like it. Technically, it's it's beyond perfect, and I don't know. I, I, I'm out of words. Anybody else? Yeah, uh, JT, you're next. Um, I feel digital loneliness. I think is a great bridge to what I'm going to talk about next. Sort of like combine, like bringing together a sense of digital alienation for revolution Ooh. a matrix revolution <laughs> uh, from 2003 a big part of my like cinematic experience this year was like um showing um, one of my roommates has not seen a lot of major movie trilogies and he's been like let's do a bunch of them we did the prequels and then we followed it up uh with the matrix series and like this is one that i like I never saw uh, the final chapter of as a young boy because I was like, dude, that's the shit one. Skip that one. And like, as as a pretentious little youth, I was I I snubbed my nose at action <laughs> cinema, and they didn't connect with me. But like through going Hong Kong Asian cinema mode over the summer, I feel like I was really able to appreciate probably like. I don't know. I think the closest like American blockbuster cinema will get to Hong Kong action through what the Wachowskis are doing here. And probably just like, I don't know, some of the last beautiful CGI American blockbuster spectacle. Mm -hmm. And I don't know anyone who writes off revolutions is some fucking loser nerd <laughs> who cares about plot shit is like too like, oh, well, we're in the weeds about this doesn't make sense. And it's like, I, I don't fucking care. It's operating on like an operatic scale in terms of emotions um, and just has so many like magnificent set pieces thrown mm. into this one. Like there's like almost like a 35 minute uh, sequence of like the Battle of Zion that's occurring. And I mean, one of the complaints lobbed at this is that like there is very little in the Matrix time in this one, but it doesn't like. I don't really give a shit. It's still delivering the goods of what I need from this. And it's, I don't know, watching through something that's like so clearly like a planned artistic vision um, from beginning to end um, is just such a stark contrast to like contemporary American like blockbuster filmmaking where it's like, I don't know, so like built by community that nothing this unique could like possibly emerge again i mean i'm excited to see what they do with the fourth and like where they go from there especially like in terms of uh digital technology and like the type of set pieces they'll uh the wachowskis well i mean it's one wachowski on four right oh, really? yeah i think oh, okay i didn't know that only one of them i don't know which is okay. like set as director i mean i'm not sure if the other is helping out in some capacity but yeah it's beautiful um, it's an amazing like sort of end uh, to the series as a whole. And I think like, I mean, a lot of people have read into the Matrix as a variety of different things. And I think just the depth and emotionality of the text like allows that to be possible. But I think to relate to like COVID stuff, I mean, there is sort of that sense of like digital alienation there where mm -hmm. it's like you are actually like connected on a digital sense but like the physical body is not is alienated and so much of the what happens in the second and the third matrix is just joy of bodies mm. like connecting and being like a lot of fucking but i don't know that's fun nice <laughs> uh 
I, I still haven't seen the either of the sequels. I've still only seen the first one, and I, I love the first one. I would say Reloaded is my favorite, but um, Revolutions, I think, is my second favorite. Nice. I, I've never seen The Matrix. Damn. I need to get on on that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I saw it uh, last year. One of my last theatrical experiences was the newer like 4K restoration. I saw it in Dolby Digital. Uh, and honestly, I think that might be the best like digital projection I've ever seen. I'm hoping if theaters are not completely dead That's in the water, not even, it's not going to happen. That like they <laughs> might do a run of the of the three again before four, but I don't know. Four coming to Apple TV in December or some shit like that. Uh. <laughs> uh, Malcolm, yeah. Uh, what's your next pick? Well, um, you know, I I also thought about the current year and the current complications oh, that we're all, you know, um, and this one's kind of related to COVID because Clint Eastwood is sick with it, man. <laughs> um, and uh, I wanted to shout out Bridges of Madison Camp, Camp, <laughs> Madison <laughs> County, um, and you know, I, I uh, you know, since you know, there hasn't been much romance on this list on our list so far. You That's know what true. I mean? That's antithetical to our mission statement <laughs> that extended club loves love. It's like uh, you know, it's as much as a romance podcast as it is a you know, it's true, a film one. And I, I, you know, I as someone who's recognized Clint Eastwood's melodramatic chops. And, you know, he's someone who's made me feel things, you know, uh, a number of times. I mean, you know, I saw I saw myself in Richard Jewell and I, I sobbed at the theater. Um, but with Bridges, you know, I, he still surprises me because I've never really seen Clint go full romance mode. And uh, I mean, this is such a like a simplistic and like intimate movie. Um, you know, I, I it's you know, you have like the pleasures of like domestic bliss kind of as Clint kind of. Uh, commandeers Meryl Streep's kitchen and uh just you know there's a lot of good times in there but also kind of like um the dilemmas with it and I also kind of like the aspect of the the kids finding you know uh the story that she's telling of her uh, Streep's affair with Eastwood and I kind of like the reaction you know because like if you heard your mom was having an affair during the time you'd be like ah, I don't know how I feel but once it's kind of passed you're like oh she lived an interesting life mm -hmm. that's cool at least that's how I see it. And, uh, I, you know, also, you know, I guess I don't have many smart things to say about this movie. But also, it, you know, it harkens back to a simpler time to where you could just pick up women just by simply knocking on their door. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's true. I, I do see a lot of myself in Clint in that movie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah uh, you know, me too. I'm like a, you know, an artist type. Yeah. I'm the sensitive alpha. That's That's what Clint is... You know, making the image of here. You know, the sensitive <laughs> alpha. I take pictures. I know uh, poetry. I respect woman, but you know, I'm I'm still an alpha. I do poetry. I respect woman. <laughs> I am alpha. No, I'm a home wrecking hussy. That's yeah. the part that <laughs> I sympathize with. You know what? I I had another one planned, but I'm just going Eastwood mode to bounce right off of you. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, this was going to be on my list. I was going to do it after this, but whatever. Yeah. Uh, a perfect world. Another film from roughly that era, Madison County's what, like 2000 or 99 or something? 95. Like 95. Oh, that's even closer. Perfect World's 93. Kevin Costner, everybody's favorite movie star of the era. <laughs> it's so weird how he's kind of actually become my favorite movie star. I was going to ask if era. you were yeah. kidding, and I was about yeah. to fucking throw hands. No, because <laughs> I always liked Bull Durham, but I was always kind of mystified by the fact that he was like the guy for a period. 
and then like you know revisiting Untouchables, and then this, and then there's something else I watched. This JFK. Year. JFK. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's like shit. He really was the guy. Yeah. Uh, but so Kevin Costner escapes jail, snatches a kid, shoots his partner, and he's out on the lam. Clint Eastwood's a Texas sheriff. He wants to track him down. But the higher-ups are putting these fucking young whippersnappers like Laura Dern and Bradley Whitford on his squad. These fucking liberals. (laughs) (laughs) So they're just roving around in a trailer that is hooked up to a pickup truck. You know, Uh, this is the squad. And this isn't like a road movie because it doesn't have a destination. It's a roving movie that takes place on the road. And Costner just driving around this child giving him life lessons reassuring him about the size of his penis and just teaching him how to live in the moral gray area that the world forces you to live in it's one of the most beautiful and moving and essential films of all time when i say essential i do mean it's like an essential pick you have to watch it but it's i guess elemental maybe is the right word it's an essentialist film it takes only the essentials that you need. It has the, these signposts of myth making, you know, and it lets you fill in the gaps. Even though it's like a two plus hour movie, it still feels like there's details that Eastwood just kind of allows you to fill in for yourself in that regard. Because so many of these scenes feel like they're huge emotional sweeps rather than concrete narrative stabs. And I think the that dichotomy of like a sweep versus a stab could even be broke down to the two locations of the film, whether you're with Costner and the kid or you're with Eastwood and the liberal young cops who, uh, well, they're not liberal. I just no, they're that. liberal. They're uh, yeah. <laughs> well, Bradley Whitford fucking shoots to kill on sight. So. <laughs> but he's a liberal in real life. Exactly. So. Brad, Brad, that's Count post-textual. It. Bradley Whitford's liberalism seeps into this film. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it is like Eastwood is just like, all right, I guess we got to do some plot for five minutes. You know, let's cut to me in the trailer. Uh, but then we'll go back and just do pure grace notes of Costner and the little kid. And, you know, I think JT talked about that scene where he reassures him about the size of his penis on a middle segment like months back but it's one of my favorite lines just perfect size for a boy your age (laughs) beautiful i think to clint's one of his infinite merits he does have so many is that he's he's a lazy man Mm. at the end of the day he he loves he loves working he loves his job but he doesn't love doing it thoroughly and so that's why his movies like you know bridges and like a perfect world will be suffused with just moments of just yeah, whatever happens, happens. Yeah. <laughs> Could we cut this? Easily. Are we gonna? Don't feel like it. <laughs> we got to take. Looks all right. Throw it in there. It's that's that's so many like great like that. Bridges of Madison County takes fucking forever. I mean, that is so goddamn slow. You don't really need those scenes of the of the ki- uh, the kids finding the stuff. But it's an interesting counterpoint because those those young those kids turned adults are very annoying. Yeah, and those yeah. scenes, they you make they make you hate them, and then you go back to 1962, and suddenly it's with it's with world wise, world weary, and wise adults you can fall in love with all over again. All of these things are are part and parcel to Clint's just sort of je ne sais quoi, as much as it, <laughs> as cliche as that is to say, he genuinely does 
embody that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Th- those two movies are, are, are fucking incredible. I don't know what to say. Yeah. I mean, Eastwood's form is always masterful. And I think on a perfect world, it's almost unassuming. Uh, because this is kind of paired with Unforgiven. He made it right after that one. And Unforgiven feels like a self-conscious masterpiece. That's the one where it's like he's writing the history book this time. He's This is him putting his foot in the ground. And obviously it's a masterpiece. Because when someone like him wants to do that, he's going to make a masterpiece. So in comparison, this kind of does feel like him tossing one off. And that's why I kind of prefer it. Because it catches all of that natural stuff uh, that natural just mastery of the form that comes with the cinema of Eastwood along the way of tossing it off, you know? Yeah. Uh, I mean, tater tots. Like the, the tater tots, tater tots <laughs> like penis like size. It's like, it's all like the, the, the baby Cokes for yeah. me. It's all those beautiful <laughs> little moments. That's why I'm there with Eastwood is because he captures this, like these little joys. I actually rewatched 1517 again this year, making it my third time of watching it uh, this year. Rather, I, I rewatched it earlier this week while I was remembering some classics. And yeah, I mean, look at the baby soda. Like that's a line that has stuck with me since January of 2017 I guess, or 18. Is that when that came out? 17 or 18? 18, 18. 18? Yeah. January of 18. That line has stuck with me since then. Like that he makes films that like. I, a lot of them, I can't tell you the plot machinations like Firefox. I just watched that one. Fuck if I can tell you beyond like, yeah, it's a Cold War like intrigue thing. And he goes and steals a plane from Russia and flies it back. It's like a two plus hour movie. What else happens? I don't fucking know. But I remember the details, you know, the the cuts that feel like, oh, my God, those two images juxtaposed like an artist has to work his whole life to reach that height of montage and Clint just tossed it off. Kinda. Um, I mean, it's easy to read too deep into his films, but that's kind of the pleasures of film going uh, is having a figure like Eastwood who you can just go so deep on his cinema, even though it feels so casual and on the surface. I mean, I like, I love both of these movies, perfect world and bridges because I mean, they're both like two hours plus long and kind of like his, you know, his tendency to meander or just kind of take slowly develop the plot really allows you to, you know, uh, appreciate the connection of these characters. And it kind of sneaks up on you, at least mm. in like a, a perfect world. It is striking how uh, melodramatic that finale is and how much it works. And yeah. I didn't even realize I was that connected to these characters. But like you said, Costner's, I mean, he's the man. And like all the little stuff he does with the kid, he's he's very uh, you know, he wants to be a good dad. Yeah, and that's that's good. <laughs> he never overhits any of the points. He never yeah. he never goes too hard with it. The first mm-hmm. kiss in Bridges in Madison County takes an hour and fifteen minutes, and the way that they use that kitchen to be like the sort of like space that Eastwood uh, invades, like you said, they hold that wide. He he holds that wide shot in it when they first kiss. Doesn't cut to the close up. Doesn't cut to the crescendo. It happens. There's basically no light, barely anything touching him, and you just see him in the distance. Oh, they're making out now. I wanted that to happen an hour ago, and now it's finally <laughs> happening. But the, the the subtlety of how they do it just is so. It just it speaks to just like so much lived experience. It's just like everybody can come into this moment and just like sort of like take stuff to it. It's uh rather than being slammed over your head. Yeah. Oh yeah, I mean same with like his visual style. I mean, I feel like occasionally they'll just be like a perfectly well-framed shot that, you know, that kind of stands out from the rest of the movie. And I kind of appreciate how Clint knows he doesn't have to do that all the time. Yeah. 
Um, let's take a little break, and then we'll hit our, our final picks for this best of the year. Oh, yeah, I forgot to ask Josh. for yeah, I, Josh, you could just do your, you could finish off. You could do your last two right now, okay? I also really loved, uh, I went through a lot of Joseph von Sternberg for the first time this year, and I watched a film called Dishonored from uh, 1931 with Marlene Dietrich. And uh, his collaborations with Dietrich were all incredible, especially Morocco, which was my other favorite. But this one really stood out to me. It reminded me with his recent passing of uh, John le Carré, just a very um, bleak look at the the spy work itself and spycraft itself, um, where Dietrich, you know, has to dress up and 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 perform um, the the work. Um, and how that is sort of contradicted by, you know, sort of like the, the violence and the, um, really repulsive nature of, you know, the, the, the state itself that she's working for that sees more honor and glory in, you know, killing people than it does, you know, um, human relationships and, and, and compassion. Um, and it has a very, very bleak and brutal ending. Uh, and last but not least, I might be going too long for your guys' show here. Sorry, I apologize. We have this problem on our show, too, where I just won't shut up. So this is your fault for inviting me. But last, uh, my favorite thing, I think, that I watched this year uh, on a long list of things that I watched from Abel Ferreira uh, was New Rose Hotel. And Abel Ferreira, very uh, important getting me through this year just in general. His uh, 444, The Last Day on Earth, was something that really spoke to me uh, during the early days of the pandemic here. But New Rose Hotel what a picture that's really all i can say about that one like um in 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 my review when i wrote about it all the way back in march i i really did latch on to its idea of trying to be romantic in a world that has reduced human connections to transactions the way that Ferrera uses you know hazy video images and uh, bank account numbers anonymous cityscapes hotel rooms and screens and you know objectified sex objects and his uh, very minimalist lo-fi version of cyberpunk just reminded me of early Cronenberg, um, obviously mixed into all of his own interests and um, the way that he abstracts the mundane spaces with the stylish lighting and crossfades. And um, yeah, it's really, really dreamy and, and kind of musical and lyrical while still, you know, being one of the rawest expressions of horniness and alienation and despair that I think I've seen put to screen. So New Rose Hotel... If you got to watch one off this list, that would be the one for all the uh, the, the the extended clip heads out there. But yeah, that's uh, everything for me. Uh, hopefully I didn't uh, interrupt the show for too long. Uh, go back to the show. All right. All right. All right. Jeez. <laughs> That'd be funny if you put it uh, like on fast forward. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we're into the final round. Um, for some of us, it's our number one. For some of us, it's just the fifth one that we happen to be talking about. Uh, but we are entering the final round of our year-end episode. Nate, I'm going to preemptively say thank you so much for coming on this podcast. It's been uh, a dream since 2020 started. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the The return was long awaited. Uh, I, I think I got upwards of three different requests for Nate's return, uh, which over the course of a year, that's not bad yeah, at all. don't tell me that. That's going right to my head. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm a fucking man. <laughs> Nate is the man. Uh, yeah. You know, anything you want to like plug, anything you want to shout out for the people to track you down, hunt you down online? Uh, no, just uh, follow me uh, on Twitter until I get banned. 
Uh, I'm I'm been seeing some dicey shit recently. I'm gonna try and really get <laughs> fucking off that shit. Um, yeah, maybe I'll I'll have a sort of uh audio project. It's like an audio scripted. It'll be a podcast form, but it's an audio scripted thing I'm working on with a friend. It'll come out soon. Oh, okay. So if you okay. like baseball? I've been writing a lot of baseball shit. Okay. So also, Nate, you appeared in the film Ham on Rye. Oh yeah, Ham on Rye. Uh, really great movie. If you get a chance to watch it, I got one line in it. You got to watch. Uh, three quarters of the movie to see me so you better do that you should rent it it's excellent one of the best movies of uh, shot right here in the san fernando valley right that's correct shot in silmar mm, which is our favorite place to hang uh we love silmar and we love ham on our great movie check it out i'm trying to think did you find any food in silmar that you liked i well my scene was actually shot in east pasadena Ooh, okay which i actually had to take a bus to get to from the west side mm. Ooh. <laughs> it's a good dispense can of yeah, Selmar like literally all I can think of in Selmar is dispensary yeah. <laughs> shout out there's like to... three that I have on point but I, I don't know anything else there other than the McDonald's right off the freeway <laughs> I just wanted to give some promo to Be Real from Cypress Hill and the opening of his new dispensary I think in Selmar or yeah. close to it uh, go check it out I bet he's got some dope strains I'm kind of close to that yeah, yeah. so Shout out me. to the shout out to the neighborhood of Silmar within the San Fernando Valley region of the Los Angeles city. Um, I think the Los Angeles city is a cool way to refer to it. <laughs> the city, the Los Angeles city. <laughs> that should be our new sports team once the Lakers becomes an offensive name. <laughs> the Los Angeles cities. Lakers. Um, <laughs> it is offensive. We don't have any dang lakes here. Uh, just kidding. It's not true. I hate when people say that. It's like. There's lakes yeah, here. Yeah, James Benning photographed. Yeah. yeah. Uh, hello. Uh, anyway, Nate. have you not seen Lowe's? <laughs> <laughs> Actually, let, let's let's hit up one last friend, uh, Evan. Evan was just on the show a few weeks ago. Let, let's bring him right back, right? Yeah. All right. Hey, fellas. I'm. Uh, I hope you've been doing well since I was on the pod a couple weeks ago. But I just wanted to call in and talk about a few of my favorite things I've seen for the first time this year. Um, so number one on this list would have to be, uh, Celine and Julie go boating by Jacques Rivette. Um, this was one of the first movies I saw this year actually. And it really just kind of threw me into a full blown love affair with Rivette that has, but, uh, that love affair has def I've definitely spread that to plenty of friends and my girlfriend even, but number two, would have to be uh, The Watermelon Woman by Cheryl Dunier. Um, Cheryl Dunier was probably my favorite filmmaker that I encountered for the first time this year. Um, and just her whole body of work is very much worth looking at because they're all kind of smaller pieces of this big whole. Um, but The Watermelon Woman is, you know, as amazing a place to start as ever. And the more distance that I get from it, the more I think it's probably one of the defining American films the past half century. Um, number three for me will have to be uh, West Indies by Med Hondo, um, which is this amazing one set musical that charts 400 years of West Indian history, all from uh, the single set of a slave ship with the same set of actors who change costumes and play different historical figures throughout time. It was shot over a period of 10 years too. And is just one of the most ambitious things that I think I've ever seen. And, uh, number four would have to be the hole by Simon Lang. 
Um, I've found Psy to be a very, very comforting filmmaker to go back to this year in quarantine. Uh, there's something about just the space that all of his films put you in mentally that I found just incredibly therapeutic um, and meditative, a state of mind to put myself in when it, it, there's just so much chaos going up in my brain. Uh, but the whole is, you know, aside from its pandemic setting, is just an amazing spin on the musical. And it's one of Sai's most romantic films, um, probably seconded only as far as ones I've seen by his newest days. Um, and the last one I want to talk about is uh, Amy Holden Jones's The Slumber Party Massacre, and by extension, it's uh, sequels. Um, because I really finally just locked in with horror this year. And, uh, the Slumber Party Massacre films are a good part of that, I think, because they are just so fully committed to actually being scary and playing with horror form and, uh, tropes, but in a way that never feels like it's looking down on the genre, even when it's criticizing its, uh, relationship to gender, especially, um, and it's gen the films are genuinely just incredibly funny uh, and very colorful and inventive. And they have some of the best gags and kills that I've seen in any horror movie. Um, so those are the five I'd like to leave you guys with. Um, and I hope you guys have a wonderful new year. Uh, and that the next year of the pod is just as good as this one. Thank you, Evan. That was a great top five. I'm glad you talked about Sai Ming Lang's The Hole, which I haven't seen yet, but I'm going to see very soon. But it's a nice, it's a nice uh, hint at what we might be talking about to round out this segment. But Nate, what is your final film? I have a three-way tie for my final film, my number one movie of the year. Uh, I thought long and hard about this. My number one movie of the year is a three-way tie between Shoa. Berlin Alexander Plotz and West of the Tracks. These uh, are some long boy yeah. movies. I think the combined runtime of the three movies is 33 hours. Um, is, oh, is the Wang Bing one the longest? No, it's the shortest. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> that one is the shortest at eight and a half hours. Okay. <laughs> Showa is the middle middle child, the overlooked at nine and a half. Mm. And Berlin Alexander Platz is is the big guy, the chonker coming in at fifteen. Uh, <laughs> they're all good. Uh, I'm gonna probably cover all thirty three of those hours in a minute and a half. <laughs> Let's go. Uh, Showa is just about one of the most perfect and most morally righteous movies ever made. All of these movies are great because of the way they approach their duration. All of them use duration as a way of sort of making. Um, sort of spiritual clarity from the sort of like evil that they're documenting. In Shoah, it's the Holocaust. In uh, Berlin Alexander Platz, it is the journey of a uh, rapist murderer pimp from jail who does all those same things again, but swears he's going straight. And somehow we sympathize with him. And in West of the Tracks, it's a uh, industrializing China entering into the 21st century and ignoring the very workers that it purports to make the rulers of its society while it destroys their fledgling community for basically no reason. 
you see so much of these people's lives and so much of their lived experience. In Shoah, you see nothing of the actual Holocaust itself, only uh, in-person testimony shot in a sort of talking head style and a roving sort of handheld camera that moves around the former concentration camp sites. In West of the Tracks, you see a very similar thing. You see a handheld camera moving around uh, these sort of hellscape, I mean, like Blade Runner-style factories of greens and blues and lava, uh, and, and then eventually that gives way to just like snowy, just sort of shells and husks of old factories and, and broken-down neighborhoods. And in Berlin Alexanderplatz, you see uh, a relentless, over-and-over, drab Weimar Germany apartments that are littered with clutter, blasted with purple lights and shot in a very impressionistic style. Suffice to say, all of these build up this sort of extreme attention to detail and extreme precision that makes you sort of, I don't know, makes you feel small amidst the level of suffering. All of these movies, Showa seems to sort of articulate the fact that there is no way that you can actually come close to articulating the amount of suffering that humans are able to exact on each other, even if you spend nine and a half hours on it. Berlin Alexanderplatz relentlessly throws you into a world where there is no possibility of happiness or satisfaction without actively doing harm to somebody else. All of your happiness is dependent on somebody else's pain. And West of the Tracks is a very pessimistic film, which essentially says that happiness is a, is a, is a forgotten concept. There's no, there's no achieving it. There's really very little to tie you and your and your community together, and there's basically no escape from outside forces beyond your control, of which all of these three movies share that sensibility. And I think that that has to do with the fact that they spend upwards of 900 minutes in each of them articulating every individual detail of a world vastly beyond human control or understanding you should subject yourselves to these movies they're more fun than i made them out to be even showa is just a great great movie to watch it's probably the best of the three just because of its moral clarity and consistency on its aesthetic over the course of the runtime i think they mentioned hitler in showa like twice but the way they build out the world of the experience of the people that they visit in Shoah is painstakingly detailed without ever showing you a single detail. It's all about the primacy and sort of like putting front and center the uh, suffering and then the witnessing to, to great evil of which all of these uh, movies insist on doing. Uh, have you guys seen them? Have you guys dug into these? I, I have not seen show. I, I feel like it's, you know, my, my birthright as a Jewish cinephile, uh, one free Blu-ray of show. <laughs> uh, no, but I, I, I mean, obviously, uh, what, what am I supposed to say? It's on, it's on my list. I yeah. did it on Christmas. That's a good thing to do. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I haven't seen any Wang Bing. I really want to. I mean, I talked Same. about China moving into modern society, obviously, with Zha Zhengke. That's like, you know, his big project, kind of. But obviously, yeah, Wang Bing's a big one for that as well. It's a fucking slog. I'm going to be honest yeah. with you. All of these movies are fucking slogs. You got to take <laughs> even breaks. Even the Fassbender? Oh, uh, yeah. Because he's always entertaining, even like in his like long stuff. Right? He is always entertaining, but it is 15 fucking hours. Yeah. And it seems like pretty harsh, the narrative. Yeah. It's literally the, the, the first things he does when he gets out of prison 
or no, well, the first thing he does is he goes and runs into this random Jew and hears about the story of this guy who tried to make a name for himself and became a pariah and then can proceeds to do that over the course of 15 hours. Mm. But the second and third things he do does are visit a prostitute and get into an argument with her. And then he goes and assaults uh, and eventually rapes the sister of the woman he murdered. Jesus. Um, it's it's bad. And then you spend 14 hours sympathizing with that guy as he gets fucking run through by society. Mm-hmm. It's a very, very fucked up way to look at, at at life. And these movies are, they're about as fucked up as movies get. They're Damn. not, like, they're not, like, fucking gory, or they're not, like, they're not, like, controversial in a sallow type way. But to sit through their idea of sadness and dejection for that amount of time is, is a very transformative experience. Then I, I think the people making it knew the effect that the length would have on people. Yeah. I, I also have a very kind of difficult pill to swallow as my last one. Uh, it's not long, though. It's ninety a little over 90 minutes. Uh, and it seems like, oh, this is a 90-minute film by Brian De Palma? This is going to be a fucking snap. It's going to be one of the breeziest experiences of all time. No, this is redacted. This is something of a retelling of casualties of war for the Iraq War, but you can't quite say that because that would deny the truth of the movie since it is also based on true events. Uh, That's how ugly we are uh, as a nation that like the atrocities that we make movies about are still being repeated two wars later, you know, Um, casualties of war, you know, you got Sean Penn, you got, you got Emilio Estevez, right? <laughs> I yeah, think, sure, uh, or yeah. one of the other, or, or, or his Sheen brother, I forget which, uh, but I'm not pulling it up because I'm talking about Redacted, but you know, classic De Palma, long takes in CinemaScope, these set pieces that are built out of, you know, slow suspense and montage and moving camera and movement of bodies and these crazy movie star performances. This one, throw all of that out the fucking window we are in the 21st century. Uh, we are living under the Patriot Act where we're always being watched and all of our screens are being duly monitored. And this is a quote-unquote found footage film. It uses one of the soldiers' handy cam diaries. Uh, he says, this is going to be my film, t- my, my free ticket into film school. You know, uh, him documenting his time serving in Iraq. Uh, it also uses news reporters from Europe. Uh, it also uses local reporters. It shows websites from like insurgents that show just like videos of, you know, terrorist acts, you know, with uh, voiceovers of them like cheering them on, kinda. And it also shows a blog of like the wives of soldiers. You just get like crying wives back in the US and. De Palma is just creating this mush of digital textures. You also, of course, have surveillance footage uh, and like deposition footage uh, from the soldiers being tried for the crime at the center of the film. If you don't know what the film's about, if you don't know what Casualties of War was about, it's about a group of soldiers who rape and murder a woman and then are tried for it. It's pretty plain and simple there. Uh, a lot of redacted takes place at this checkpoint. The aesthetic mode there is a French documentary, which is great, just like uh, Femme Fatale, which we talked about earlier. De Palma just using that like 
uh, his cachet in French to just be like, all right, I can kind of have a little fun with it. You know, I'll rob can and I'll do an artsy documentary in French as my excuse to actually have well-composed images uh, for a segment of this film and score it uh, to Sarbante or whatever that piece is called. That's the dual music in Barry Lyndon. Yeah. Uh, and it's just like this slow procedural of checkpoints. And it's one of the harshest set pieces in his entire career as these cars just have to go through this small barricade of American soldiers who are pointing assault rifles at them. Uh, and we of course see one of them go wrong where it bursts into violence. And, you know, we even get text on screen about the real facts and, you know, how many of these checkpoints led to deaths and how many people were actually tried as insurgents. Uh, but of course the realest footage of all comes at the climax, the climax of this film, you know, the ultimate, we can't, go home moment where we see one of the soldiers uh at a bar with his wife and his friends and it's like an applebee's commercial almost and they're just hanging out and they're like we're, we're so glad to have you back but he just can't do it and he just breaks down and starts crying and then they just take a picture to commemorate the moment while he's sobbing and then it shows after his you know melodramatic white teary-eyed face with his support of his fellow whites around him at a bar uh, it then shows uh, blurred out faces, but real images of dead Iraqi uh, women, children, men, you know, it's just dead bodies, just like not just like show show it doesn't show you dead bodies, uh, but it is a film that forces you to reckon with just the depths of humanity. You know, Mark Cuban was an executive producer on this. Brian De Palma pitched the show on Shark Tank. <laughs> <laughs> All right, sharks. We got 12 cameras, 12 soldiers. They're in Iraq right now. <laughs> he got an offer from Damon, but the film would have been a little different. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it all starts out of Bill O'Reilly doing this classic Fox News rant where he talks about Brian De Palma, uh, you know, provoking Iraqi uh, citizens to kill American soldiers with this film and calling him a vile man. And, you know, if any American troops die because of Redacted, uh, the blood is on Brian De Palma's hands. And he, it was insane, you know. Uh, and so after that, like, he also called for uh, boycotts of the Dallas Mavericks because, you know, Mark Cuban is an owner. And he had people like uh, he, he announced on his show that people who would continue to support the Mavericks should loudly support the troops at their games and bring signs that are in support of their troops. You That's know? what we believe the 2007 Warriors run was all about. <laughs> <laughs> but Mark Cuban had a great response. He says, uh, the movie is fully pro-troops. The hero of the movie is a soldier who stands up for what is right in the face of adversity. I think the concept that the enemy will see the films and use it as motivational, use it as motivation is total nonsense. We have no plans of translating these movies to Arabic or other Middle Eastern languages. <laughs> Holy fuck. So clearly, yeah, he just didn't fucking get it, uh, obviously. <laughs> but yeah, Redacted is like, I don't know, if, if you want a 21st century Brian De Palma film that feels like Brian De Palma watch passion. It's a masterpiece and it's like his best split screen sequence. And th there's sexy ladies everywhere. If you want a Brian De Palma film that forces you to reckon with 
America in the 21st century and what we've been doing since 9-11, watch Redacted because it's it's one of the greats. It's a real sicko movie. I watched it about four hours ago. Yeah. It messed up. I mean... This is a movie that uses diegetic photography, like uh, diegetic, like uh, handheld photography, or or other sources of of video in every sh- scene, including the yep. last scene where they shoehorn a guy having a camcorder in the last scene, just cause so they can take the picture mm-hmm. and he can have the whole bar cheer. None of it registers as realistic in any way. That's why I think people hated it. Um, but <laughs> it's so alienating. And then to have that scene, which is so diegetically shot. But you're just piping in like Bernard Herman like music, like like the violin (laughs) shit you hear in every De Palma movie. To just lather that on top is so fucking brain breaking. It blasts through all fucking all barriers of good taste and is is in such bad taste that you have to respect it. Yeah. Like it's like forget I mean, Shoah is a very consistent ideological movie that that really cares about what gets shown and why. And this uh, is the opposite of that in a way that works in the same way. Yeah. It's just with no regard to good taste and just say, fuck, it, if you're mad, that's good. Um, and and that I like that. I will say it's very, very analogous to our modern life. Like it's got a lot of, you know, split screen like Skype conversations and it's got a lot of like almost YouTuber style content of people talking mm-hmm. to the camera. It's got a lot of selfies, things like that. The thing that I think that is very, very reminiscent of 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 modern digital life in that movie is how it has an almost like uh tiktok degree of incredibly cringy acting by every single person in the movie i mean those performances are terrible every single person is just ticky and theatery and over the top it's very weird but it it works it pisses me off and the movie was supposed to piss me off yeah so it was good. <laughs> uh, one of the you know craziest lines in this movie, of course, is when they are holding the. And th- by the way, this is like a teenage Iraqi girl that they rape and kill, like a child, you know. And she's being held at gunpoint, and the one soldier who you know can't go through with it and is trying to get his fellow troops to you know not do this. The guy asks him, "Are you not supporting the troops?" You know, uh, and it's just like, are you supporting the troops? Because that's what supporting the troops means, you know. And, and obviously, this is the era where the support your troops ribbon bumper sticker was the thing that was like as popular as the Live Strong cancer bracelet. You know, uh, supporting the troops was just what you did in the 2000s, even though it was one of the most evil wars ever, you know. Yeah, Republican or Lib, you had to swallow that pill. Yeah. Uh, Neil Bahader calls it the most responsible film made in America in the 21st century, and I'm inclined to agree, honestly. It's also, I will say, maybe as a slight detraction, it is very, very daily show. I mean, there is a there is a monologue that the main villain soldier gives where he talks about his brother who ran for student body president at his college (laughs) and rigged the election to steal it from some other guy in a way that is oddly reminiscent of the 2000 presidential election yeah i'm like does this have to be here i don't know um i like it yeah (laughs) i was like god damn (laughs) it's it's as detached on the nose uh dare i say brechtian as anything that brian yeah. De Palma or really any american filmmaker has dared to do uh, on this topic especially malcolm 
Well, yeah. what's your last pick? I mean, I have it written down right here, but what is it? <laughs> well, you know, we're talking about a lot of a lot of nasty stuff, bad stuff. You know, war crimes, uh, Holocaust stuff. You don't, you know. Well, ta- I I picked Tale of Cinema, and this is Ooh. maybe a more personal uh, trauma, more of a, a more personal type of shame. And uh, I watched this kind of early into quarantine, and I'm be honest, I don't re- really remember much, but it did leave a huge impression on me, and I feel like. Every single year I watch a Hong movie that just kind of floors me. Yeah. Puts me in my place almost. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Hong Sang-soo is, he's a great filmmaker to binge, if you will, during quarantine. Uh, but also Tale of Cinema is such a great one for that because classic Hong, you get, you know, uh, multiple narratives in it. You get a film within a film first. Uh and then you get like the afterwards, uh, the the story of an actor that was involved, and you know it's a classic Hong male jealousy cringe comedy kind of for the last you know forty minutes or so after the film within a film ends, and I don't know, man, that that neon at night when they're just like drunk and outside a bar, it looks as good in that movie as it does in any other Hong movie for me. Yeah, and you know what, you know Hong is a filmmaker who makes very uh, self-effacing films. And that's not very unique to him. A lot of filmmakers do that. But I, I guess maybe it's maybe his visual style or something to it that makes it feel much more incisive compared to, I don't know, maybe like, uh, you know, I don't want to, you know, Woody Allen or something. Not to, not no disrespect. No Trust disrespect. me, I like Hong <laughs> Sang-soo more than Woody Allen. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think we can say that safely. Um, yeah, you know, I'm taking shots here at <laughs> Sacred Cows. Yeah, I mean, just like, a, you know, the long takes and kind of like his dry use of like voiceover and stuff mm. like that. And I mean, he's just uh, his emphasis on like just the patheticness of this character. It's it's a lot of things at once. It is like it is funny, but it is like, I don't know, you, you are cringing enough to where it's you're not uh, busting out belly laughs or yeah. anything like that. It's also just like the the insults i guess like really cut deep like this feels like hong like roasting himself so hard in certain scenes like the woman telling the guy like i don't think you understood the film and it's like (laughs) the film that he was in and you know thinks that is really about him uh which i guess was really about him it's been it's been a while since i watched the movie but it's so ridiculous in that regard uh and yeah it's like very funny in a self-effacing way yeah, that's pretty much all I got on it. Yeah. Uh, very melodramatic, too, the film within a film. The film yeah. within a film is, like, crazy melodramatic, <laughs> yeah. which I really like, just cause, just to contrast with the realism of the next part, you know. JT. Yes. What, what's the best film of 2020? Well, I mean, I like this is the only one I haven't taken notes on, because I need your boy's help to help me run a train on this. <laughs> uh, but it's Size Goodbye Dragon Inn. I mean, we've talked like to some degree about like how uh, our experience with movies this year has pertained to like COVID and stuff like that, and I feel like nothing like fits that bill more in terms of like I feeling the experience of being at a movie theater, which I have so sorely missed, while also watching cinema die <laughs> right <Yeah>. in front <laughs> of you, like. That's goodbye, Dragon Inn. That's that that scratches that itch for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh man, it, it's one of the most devastating movies ever. Yeah, I'll say this about about Goodbye, Dragon Inn. Saying a movie relates to you or to the world at large is 
a very simple-minded way <laughs> of approaching movies. At best, it is a tool by which we can arrive at what the movie has to say that changes our perspective or gives us a new perspective or opens up a different world to us. That being said, when reality catches up to a movie 17 years later <laughs> to make it an absolute perfect, I mean you could not write it right now and make it more accurate to how things are, uh, that to me can only count in a movie's merit. Yeah, It almost feels like, oh, okay, credit to the filmmaker for... Uh, having some sort of crystal ball or going through a wormhole to go into the future and bring it back to 2003 and then show it to us before we even knew it would happen. That, to me, is how I felt watching Goodbye Dragon Inn. I mean, it's a movie that feels like it was made by God. I mean, what do you want? <laughs> it's too smart. Yeah. And, and, and reality warping itself to be like the movie has only made it feel that much more correct. For those who are unfamiliar... Uh, Simon Lang's Goodbye Dragon Inn shows the final screening uh, of a cinema, and it's a grand old cinema, and it's showing King Who's Dragon Inn as its final screening. And hey, two of the actors are in the audience. That, that's a nice little uh, IMDb <laughs> trivia fact. <laughs> Easter eggs. Easter eggs. Even before Marvel was doing them. <laughs> it kind of just floats around the, the cinema. I It's really maybe even 30 minutes in that someone says, you know, do you know the cinema's haunted? And I I had read that line before, so I knew it going in. But like the the haunting feeling, you you say it's a movie made by God, but the camera itself feels so much more ethereal than what God could possibly be. Trinity man, Trinity man, Holy Ghost. (laughs) (laughs) It's more ghost than God. It's I can't even describe it because it's all of these people. It's not a crowded cinema, obviously. It's a sparsely attended one. Uh, it's also the it's also King Who, you know, and it's also those actors on screen as well as them uh, watching the film on screen and the space that the cinema has in, inhabited. I've never seen a setting demonstrate its age more than the movie theater in this. This is a movie theater that people have gone to those seats are worn down and it's not like you take a, 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 a scalpel or whatever you, you, you know, poke at the seat to make it look worn down for production design, whether they did that or not, you know uh, it's just the textures of the image seem to sink in through both size, long shot or long take rather the duration of his takes and just the attention to detail on the composition, as well as the sound design, bringing all these textures to life, as Simon Lang's very wet settings always do. Uh, speaking of wetness, uh, I, I was so delighted to find a video on YouTube the other night called Longest Pee Ever in a Movie, <laughs> and it was the scene from Goodbye Dragon. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. it's There's nothing really... I. It, I, I say there's nothing I can say about it. I could talk about it for four fucking hours. <laughs> it's I want you take over though. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. I just think like there are so many moments where it's like we've I I think with our final films like talked about like particularly like movies that deal with like a lot of heavy subjects and therefore like tend to be a little bit more serious. And I think like Psy like especially in his later work will veer into like particularly miserable and intense mm. stuff. 
But this is like an interesting like sort of midway point where it has that like melancholy and there's like playfulness there and there's like the gay hookup culture happening. Mm. Um, but also just sort of like funny like I don't know theater stuff where it's like someone's chewing too loudly or putting their feet up like next to you. Just like moments that are like weirdly specific to like the cinematic experience as a whole while like transcending that to go to like a a larger scale about uh, cinema in general. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's not, this movie doesn't have a particularly grim subject matter. I mean, it is sad, of course. I mean, if you look at, I saw this on the internet, there were images, I don't remember where, but I saw images of the goodbye dragon in theater now, or at least Mm -hmm. a couple of years ago, somewhere on the internet. And just like all the seats are fucking even more dilapidated than it is in the movie. Just like whole rows are just out of order. There's yeah. puddles and every. It's it looks... a flyer for Christopher Nolan's memento on the ground. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> very sad. Um, but yeah, there's no real subject matter. There's no thing to really approach. What you have instead is a bunch of people who come in from the outside and they bring themselves to the movie screen and just kind of interact with it. And we just kind of watch that process. So I think that there's a lot of really wonderful moments there. I mean, this is a sad movie, a good vibe movie, but it's also like there are little moments where where the character just kind of watches a movie or stands next to the screen or just kind of takes in just a minute of silence. And you learn so much about who they are and you learn like just like so much of how what someone brings in from the outside interacts with like what they're engaging with in the movie theater that it like really just, it, it, it builds out so much of like lived experience that you can't even begin to understand of these people. And that to me is like, Oh, there's so much more there. Despite the fact that this movie is functionally about nothing. There's not a whole lot going on, but there's so much just in the silence and in the, the just watching of a movie. And of course, that is reflected back onto you. It's a meta thing. It's like you are watching these people. What does that say about you? Can you take anything from these people? That kind of thing. It's brilliant. I mean, it's like it's a, it's a one. It's very simple. We are we're underselling how good it is, but it is fundamentally a very simple idea. And I love just how it just shoots that idea perfectly at you. And just like how routine the close, like this yeah. being the final showing of a movie, it is like it's just it's cinema dying without any fanfare. It's like you, you see that long shot like um, from the like perspective where the screen is mm-hmm. sort of at the end after the movie's over and the woman just sweeping. And it's just like, there. I mean, obviously the exchanges that happen like remark about how sort of the theater is closing and whatnot, but it's, it's just as normal as it would have been on any other day. Yeah, the long take, I don't know how many minutes, of her sweeping up under all the seats after the house lights come up. Immediately, one of my favorite shots of all time. Like, partway through the shot, a minute in, I was like, oh, this is the best shot I've ever seen, you know? Uh, And it is deceptively simple, because then when you think about time, it gets so fucking complicated. Goodbye Dragon Inn, or sorry, yep, Goodbye Dragon Inn is like 83 minutes. Dragon Inn is almost two hours what parts are truncated in the screening. There's a little bit after the movie even. Uh, There's some points where it feels like time is entirely standing still. There's points where you're navigating those deep corridors that seem to go on forever behind the cinema, those very narrow spaces that you walk through. And you're completely lost from the screening of the movie. And I I feel like the way that Psy plays with time on a small scale like that and the grand scale of the decay of a cinema 
and cinema on the whole as you know a post-textual thing that we apply to it now uh is just like i don't know it's as good as movies get any final thoughts on it malcolm i haven't seen it oh i thought you've yeah. seen it you're like the og yeah, Simon well, I, that's well that's you know it's interesting about this movie i i'd watched it first in my side journey and i didn't really attach to it it was like 15 or something like okay, that yeah. yeah yeah i watched it on a laptop um, and I'm kind of, I want to go through his filmography again, maybe save this one for last. Cause yeah. I already know it's going to, you know, fuck me, fuck me over. Yeah. It's going to fuck you, man. I do <laughs> have a final thought on this movie. And okay. I just, it just came to me. If we get $2,000 from the government, which I think we may, even if we don't, I can dip into my savings. I wonder if you can still rent out like the AMC for private screenings. Oh yeah. They were doing that for a while. If they're still yeah. doing that. I'm renting that an AMC thing out for Goodbye Dragon Inn. <laughs> I and I'm just going to trash the place. I'm going to put water everywhere. <laughs> just, just have buckets running down the side. I'm going to really make it feel like the theater. Yeah. And I'm just going to sit there by myself and vibe. <laughs> Where I thought you were going with that, I thought you were like, let's make Goodbye Dragon Inn too. <laughs> yeah, like, no, let's do I mean, for sure. I mean, that's about people renting out an AMC. No one's even been there for weeks and we just go to watch Sully on a DCP there. <laughs> There's two guys having gay sex in the handicapped <laughs> yeah. seats right in the front. <laughs> like, come on, guys. We rented this place out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the bathroom's been closed since March, man. <laughs> All right. Well, I guess we'll leave you with that fantasy uh, of cruising at a private screening of Sully uh, for our final thought of 2020. Thank you so much for listening, as always. Um, you know, next year, whether or not we can actually return to the cinema, if some fucking miracle happens by the end of the year, and it f- seems about right, um, we'll see you there. But if not, we'll see you at home, remembering the classics, listening to the podcast. I don't know what else to say. I might go to Arizona and catch a movie. Oh, I'll go like with that. you. Uh, no, mm. actually, I won't. <laughs> <laughs> Busted, dude. That was a trap. Yeah. Walked right into that one. Donate to the Patreon. I mean, do a bonus episode every fucking week. It's uh, sometimes better than the main feed. I, I will say it's $2 a month. And uh, the most recent thing on there is with Rob Franco. Talked about the Godfather trilogy. You know what's you know what's the first Patreon episode of the year? It's going to be season two, episode one of Bank Check. And you know who the subject of this season is? Michael Cimino. Uh, Josh Lewis is going to be joining us on that one to talk about Thunderbolt and Lightfoot and I almost said Heaven's Gate, but that's not it. The Deer Hunter. Yeah. Uh, that was a really fun one. And we also had to make it experimental. You'll see when you listen, a uh, very strange episode for about 10 minutes, but then it becomes normal. Good. Yeah. We got, you know, we decided we got to put more star power on the Patreon, <laughs> not just us. We know that's not, you know. It's not worth paying for. So a lot of guests on it. So pay two dollars. Not a lot of guests. Lots and lots of guests. A guests. Yeah. <laughs> Tons. All your favorite stars. All your favorites are back. Uh, happy New Year. Any final words, JT? Uh, happy New Year. Um, maybe 2021 is finally the year we uh, break bread with Jeff Wells and his wife. Um, get him on here. Get get both of them on here. I think it's a family affair. All right, and maybe in 2021 we'll have a woman on the show again because we didn't do that this year. Let's, let's yeah. settle down. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. Thanks for asking me to contribute some thoughts to your personal top five first viewings. Uh, there are definitely plenty of films that I think are just incredibly great and 
uh, including, of course, Goodbye Dragon Inn, which is one of my very favorite films ever. The King's All Here, The Rocking Horseman, another Obayashi film, uh, which I saw for the first time this year as well, when, which is uh, which is one of my favorites from him. Uh, the World by Zha Zheng Ke. Uh, but I definitely want to shout out Nate's, not only Nate's list, but also his, his viewing patterns, especially during the sort of early part of, of quarantine, uh, where he was just going through lots of Hong Kong and and Taiwanese and Chinese action films, which I was certainly doing uh, myself, uh, as I said before with Johnny Toe, uh, especially loved that he was going through King Hu films and uh, and even taking a detour into Kyoshi Kurosawa films, which Kurosawa was a great, great favorite of mine as well. Uh, but especially I wanted to highlight his his love for Dirty Ho, as, as, which is on his list, and Petty Cab Driver by Samuel Hung. I also saw both of these for the first time uh, this year, and I completely adore both of them. It's, uh, I think that they both have some of the most incredible fights just front to back ever I've ever seen in a film, uh, especially the in Petty Cab Driver, the fight between La Carleon, the director of Dirty Ho, and, and Samo is quite possibly my favorite fight I've ever seen in a film. Just the way it develops, the... The, how comedic it is and yet how just lightning fast each of the performance are is just incredible absolutely incredible and of course dirty how has just some of the greatest choreographies some of the most inventive fights i've ever seen i i very frequently rewatch some of the fights especially the the sort of fight that takes place w- with between gordon liu and two men who are trying to assassinate him while they're undergoing a wine tasting ceremony and it's all done. It's all cloaked under the niceties and the the politeness of of high society, essentially. And both of these films are just so incredible at skewering this this sensibility and making it fun while also paying incredible attention to this to the gracefulness and the speed and wit of these fights. Uh, definitely, Hong Kong films. Just the f- fun of them was essential for me to for getting through uh, isolation and and quarantine and so i'm really glad that nate had the same thinking as well thanks again can't wait to hear your thoughts on these films i'm not doing it man you fucking candy i'm not doing it shut the fuck up are you not supporting the troops what are you not supporting the troops (laughs) oops but even worse even worse are those citizens right now who continue to put us all in danger by misusing their freedom. Spotlight One, Hollywood director Brian De Palma. De Palma admits he made the film to hurt the effort in Iraq. Now that vile man and his vile film will have an effect all right, 